Well, greetings, all you Commanders, Eagles, and Angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Hard News on Friday night on Radio Station One. So thank you for joining us here tonight. I'd like to take a few moments to get into that heart space, that tongue for the evening. So let's take a few gentle breaths. Breathe into your nose, out to your mouth, slowly, gently. Let go of that dross of the day. We hear that calling drum. As we go into our heart space, let us gather with our guides and guardians, our healing kings, our spirit kings, our ancestors, anyone you want to go with that kimi drum with. And there's a council fire in the center, so let's gather around that council fire and make that perfect circle around that fire in that virtual way we know how to do. As I call in the seven galactic directions, the Mayan tradition, and I'm going a little bit faster tonight because we are going to listen to t- something in the last t- half hour. So if I sound, <laughs> here we go. We welcome from the east, the house of light, the wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us so that we may see all things clearly. And we welcome from the north, the house of night, may wisdom mature among us so that we may see everything from within. Here we greet from the West, the house of transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action, so that we might accomplish what must be done. Here we greet from the South, the house of eternal sun. May right action give us the harvest, so that we might enjoy the fruits of the planetary beings. And we welcome from above the house of paradise, where the star people and the ancestors gather and their blessings reaches now. And we greet from below the house of the earth. May the beating of the crystal planet's heart bless us with its harmony so that we might end war. We welcome from the center and the source of the galaxy, which is everywhere at once. May everything be recognized as the light and mutual love. Ayun, Hunapku, even Maya, Imaho. Ayun, Hunapku, even Maya, Imaho. Ayun, Hunapku, even Maya, Imaho. All hail the harmony of mind in nature. Homotakuya, all my relations in my ash. I am another you, you are another me. So let's take a few moments and look at the Mayan calendar, this record of days in the, for today and for the week ahead. Today is the blue planetary hand, and that planetary tone is perfect, manifest, produced in the hand, knowing, healing, and accomplishment. So we're in these core days, and we're with this blue planetary hand. This is the manifestation, I mean, the the mantra, excuse me, for today. 
I perfect in order to know producing healing. I seal the store of accomplishment with the planetary tone of manifestation. I am guided by the power of vision. The occult power is is the white wizard, and the ally today is the yellow human, and the challenge today is the red earth. So in that tone guide, that power of vision is the blue eagle. So those are the aspects for today. And I'll share a little bit about the hand. The healing hand is a healing aspect, and it's about healing ourselves and others. So we embrace the gifts of being that healer of humankind as we let go of any distractions. And then on Sunday or Saturday, it's an 11 Lamont, the yellow spectral star. And this Lamont energy is a visionary aspect, and it's about the elimination of humankind. And we embrace these gifts of having that power to see beyond the gate as we let go of any dissonance or self-doubt. And then on Sunday, it's a 12 Maluk, the red crystal mirror. It's an artist aspect, and it's about that wise use of our rational mind. As we embrace these gifts of that contact with spirit, we let go of any insensitivity or any self-doubt. And then on Monday, it's a 13 off. We complete this wave of the mirror that we've been working with, and we're right in the middle of these four days. This is the middle at at this point, so <laughs> of the the hob as it's called the Vulcan Matrix. So on Sunday, I mean on Monday, the third, the white cosmic dog is the thirteen ox, which is an artist aspect, and it's about unconditional love. And so we embrace that gift of our contact with our spirit guides as we let go of any unwise use of anger or any fears. And then on Tuesday, it's the one, two, and so we begin the new uh, wave of the, <clears throat> the wave of the cosmic dog. I mean, the uh, the magnetic, the blue magnetic, excuse me, the blue magnetic monkey uh, on this one, two. It's the artist aspect, and it's about balancing work and play and working with in- innocence and spontaneity and that and humor as we let go of any insensitivity. Uh, so beginning this new wave on Tuesday, we move right along on Wednesday to two ebb, the yellow lunar human. And it's a healing aspect, and it's about the enlightenment of humankind and, and attune, attuning to spirit. So we embrace the gift of being that human servant warrior as we let go of any dependence on the analytical mind. And then on Thursday, it's a three band, the red electric Skywalker, which is a warrior aspect. And it's working with our focus and striving towards self-elimination. So we embrace these gifts of strength and that ability to bend dimension as we let go of any resistance to faith. And then Friday, when we come back, it's a four each, the white self-existing magician. Visionary aspect, and it's about elimination for others. It's that gift of being the shaman, working with that jaguar medicine, and that <clears throat> letting go of any control issues or any manipulation. And we'll talk about that some more next Friday when we get back together. I'm going to change my hat as we are listening to support radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. And 
So each week we need money for the radio and for um, <clears throat> the need to car and Rama as they <clears throat> have to pay bills and live a life with our commitment to them is to support them that way. So this week they have $150 for the Geico and Bonnie's bill and another $150 for another bill. So it's $300 in bills and they need $200 for their uh, living expenses. And this week for the radio, I believe we need around $300. I forgot to ask, but we're just going to go with that and we can update with Tara when we get to her. So here's how we make a donation to BBS Radio. And so we're looking for roughly $300, and that uh, way we do this, go to your heart's page, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com, click on the schedule there that's on the homepage, and you'll find on Thursdays and Fridays at the 8 o'clock hour, these are central times. On Thursdays, a night at the round table with the panel, and on Fridays, it's this program, the hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama. And that's on Radio Station 1. So as you click on the Radio Station 1 and look, look at that icon there that's in that schedule, just click on the icon that takes you directly to our account with CBS. So use your bank card and make a donation there in any amount. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for your attention to this matter. We're so grateful for all that BBS Radio does for us, and we're grateful for all that you do for us. So... Thank you, thank you, thank you for taking that action. So, as we're making a gift to Tara Rama, and, they, and again, they need $500 to cover their bills and their living expenses um, for this week. So, that is, um, you can access their PayPal account by going to rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the homepage, you'll see a a menu grid. Click on that and you'll see the, uh, that menu drop down and it's a long list, but near the bottom of that list is a donate link. So click on that and that'll take you to Roman's PayPal account and there you can make a donation in any amount. As you're wanting to use the friends option, you want to click on the heart that's there and use this email. It'll ask you for the email uh, for Rama to make a, a, friend, a friend gift. And so that email address is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. And uh, that should share that that way. Either way, it's perfect. We're grateful for your contribution. And then as you're sending something, please let Rama know. And that email to for that is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at net. Let him know what you said, when you said it, and that way he can organize his life with that. <laughs> so, um, and what else? Yes, yeah, so as you needed, the mailing address for Rama is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D. Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 28280, Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. I'll say it again, Santa Cruz, New Mexico. Eight seven five six seven. So, and it's all through the website rainbowroundtable.net. If you need to look it up, if I went too fast, and I'm passing the talking stick, and it looks like an indie racer. 
got lots of fast wheels on it. It's got lots of wings. It's flying fast. And it's got lots of fairies and feathers and and that uh, Excalibur sort of truth and lots of dragons and unicorns. Greetings, Tar and Rama. Here comes the talking stick. Thank you. Greetings. Thank you, Thank you, everyone. We are so grateful to be here. The energies are getting higher. Every day, they keep going up quite a few notches, so to speak, and I'm feeling it. We are feeling it, too. We're going to do this, a really quick update, and then we're going to play... Cornell West's uh, speech announcing uh, he's running for president. Uh, and, and so here we go for the report here. It's Mr. X continued. I can say this. Oh, sorry. We got to start at the beginning. Turn the page back, please. Okay. I received a text message from Mr. Mr. X, he said to me, Lord Rama, at 1.20 p.m. Uh, this afternoon, what? What happened? 1.20 this afternoon, I didn't write it. Oh, the plasmatic light slash photonic light is coming in at quantum light speed. So that was going on this afternoon. It's probably yes, still going on. There are big solar flares happening. Is that where the photonic plasmatic light comes from? Yeah, it's like the sun is a portal when it comes through there. Okay. These energies are directly from creator source. God got us all it is. It is activating all, all the planets in our solar system. We will say it again. The flash is extremely imminent. <clears throat> One of the suns in the constellation, Betelgeuse, which is 642.5 light, light years from Earth, Betelgeuse, is on the edge of going supernova. Yikes. We will see it. We will feel it. Rama had some footage he was showing me on the uh, internet there. Yes. You can watch it live. And so you, if you're paying attention, you can watch it. They'll, they'll, they'll frame it. Yeah. You'll see the whole thing. Holy cow. It is about the upliftment of the various dimensions of our galaxy. See, everything's being lifted up as our son gets ready to make his her ascension. And us, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, the story about the boxes. Oh, <laughs> the my. boxes. They're showing it everywhere. Oh, in my the God. bathroom, in the shower, in the grand room, on the stage. Oh, my God, hundreds and hundreds of boxes. Unbelievable. Okay, meanwhile, the story about the boxes is a story about the organized crime 
that is going on at the highest levels of government around the planet. I'll bet you Donald Trump's got his name and files on him for the last 50 years. That's why he took it. That's definitely why he took it. Uh, and all his buddies, too, and probably that entire Republican Party, they're, that's why they're so nice to Mr. Trump. They're starting to balk. Yeah. Because they know they're next. Okay, Mr. X continued, I can say this, Lord Rama. You do not steal nuclear secrets and try to sell them to a foreign country, such as North Korea, Kim Jong-un. He did that, everybody. This is a plot right out of the Avengers. And Nick Fury has things under control. He's the head of the Avengers now. <laughs> yes. Saga. As we go through these next few moments, disclosure is on the table. This goes back to the sons and daughters of light. These are the Pleiadians who have been coming here for millennia. They have been here since the very beginning, having sent the first galactic landing Parties. party party mission in Kalalau Valley on the backside of Kauai, Hawaii. They are here to help with disclosure. That is as much as I can say to you. Satnam Namaste, Blaze of Father Fire. Turn this thing on. We're going to oh, listen. You gotta put, yeah. Oh, I can put it on there. Hurry up, Tara. Okay. Let's get this started. All righty. Where is it? DemocracyNow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Well, the 2024 presidential race is becoming more crowded. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and former Vice President Mike Pence have both joined the Republican race. Meanwhile, the philosophy professor and civil rights activist Cornel West has announced he's running for president as a candidate with the People's Party. In a short video released Monday, Dr. West criticized both the Democratic and Republican parties. We're not talking about hating anybody. We're talking about loving. We're talking about affirming. We're talking about empowering those who have been pushed 
tell the truth about Wall Street, about Ukraine, about the Pentagon, about big tech. West announcement surprised many political observers. In 2008, he endorsed Barack Obama, but later became a vocal critic of the Obama-Biden administration. In 2016 and 2020, he backed Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primaries. Cornel West is now running as a member of the People's Party, which was founded by a former staffer of Sanders after the 2016 election as an alternative to the two-party system. This will be the first time the party has fielded a candidate for president. According to the New Republic, the People's Party has ballot access in barely a handful of states. Dr. West is one of the nation's most recognized public intellectuals. He's a professor of philosophy and Christian practice at Union Theological Seminary. He formerly taught at Princeton and Harvard universities. He's joining us now from Irvine, California. Cornel West, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Can you talk about why you've decided to run for president of the United States? First, Sister Amy, I want to salute you. You are an exemplar of longevity, of integrity, and consistency. You know, we go back many, many decades. So I just want to uh, always begin on that note. You're putting a smile on Brother George and Sister Dorothy's face, your precious parents. But no, my uh, announcement of running for president of the United States to uh, be head of the empire to help dismantle uh, it in such a way that poor and working people would be at the very center, at the very core of our vision of what a good society actually is. And it has to do, as you can imagine, with the, this, these very bleak times, these very desperate times. So it's a kind of act of desperation. You know, I'm 70 years old. I've been at this for 55 years, and I have a calling that flows out of the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. and Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel and Edward Zaid and Eve Joseph and Dorothy Day and Grace Lee Boggs and Louisa Marino. All of those are the best of America. And I think uh, we're at such a low point that America needs to be reintroduced to its best. And its best has always been the movement's for justice, the struggles for freedom, the solidarity based on a fundamental commitment to the dignity of those sly stone calls everyday people. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt in my mind that the two-party system now is a major impediment for the empowerment of poor and working people. I'm thoroughly convinced that, uh, of course, the neo-fascist Republican Party uh, has already made it very clear that they they tied to big business and big military, big tech and so forth. And the milquetoast neoliberal Democratic Party strikes <laughs> me as being incapable of taking seriously the fundamental needs of poor and working people, not just here, but around the world. The militarism abroad, $7 billion frozen for Afghan mm -hmm. brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and what, what's been AFRICOM in Africa What's been going on in the Middle East? Thank God that you keep track of the precious Palestinian brothers and sisters and all the hell that they're catching. You have it every day. And I thank God that you do. Why? Because 
Palestinian peoples deserve to have a visibility in terms of their suffering and ways in which they can attempt to get out from under. Same would be true, of course, for our Jewish brothers and sisters in a Russia or in a, a France where their, their rights are being violated. We're wrestling with organized greed. We're wrestling with institutionalized hatred. We saw that with our precious gay brothers and lesbian sisters and queer siblings uh, in the earlier report. But it's also a matter of routinized indifference. There's an indifference to the plight of the vulnerable. More and more, it's becoming not just a fad and the fashion, it's becoming a normalized way of life. And that is what leads toward wholesale fascism. Not just here, but in other parts of the world. We see it, of course, in Hungary. You see it. Saw it in Brazil and go on and on in this regard. So for me, it's really a matter of trying to be consistent with what I've been about for the last 55 years. Cornell, you talk about militarism. I want to ask you about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In March of last year, you told the New Yorker, we must try to stop the war, recognizing that the American empire has little or no moral authority when it comes to violation of international law and the overthrow of national sovereignty, as in Latin America, the Middle East, and Asia. You've also called Putin, um, uh, uh, you've been severely critical of President Putin um, for the invasion. Talk about your views on what happened, what is happening, and how the war needs to end. Well, one, I think you have the clash of two empires, the Russian Empire, the deeply wounded empires, have its territory cut back. Of course, its economy is shrinking. And then you've got the American Empire, which is the most powerful empire in the history of the world. In fact, it's the 68th empire out of the 70, going back to the beginning of the human species. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, you have the promise of the American Empire, to the elites in the Russian Empire, we will not move an inch. And within decades, 14 of the satellite countries of the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, are part of NATO. There's missiles right on the borders and boundaries of the Russian Empire. Now, we know empires behave like empires. I mean, if there's missiles in Canada and Mexico, the U.S. government would blow them to smithereens. <laughs> Quick, we saw it in Cuba in 1962. So that empires behave like empires. They're greedy. They're driven by predatory capitalist dispositions. They're obsessed with hierarchy. They're concerned with domination and conquest. The Alexander the Great associated with a grand empire. So that in that regard, there's no doubt in my mind that the expansion of NATO has played a, uh, a crucial role in the wounded Russian Empire with all of its repression, all of its regimentation. Let us never forget about the thousands of Russian brothers and sisters who are going to jail in opposition to gangster Putin's criminal invasion. But he's pushed against the wall and he responds. That's how heads of empire respond. So we've got to be in solidarity with the suffering of Ukrainian brothers and sisters. But we have to recognize NATO is a 
instrument of American imperial foreign policy. We've seen it over and over again. And so we're witnessing a proxy war. There must be a ceasefire. There must be a stopping of that war. Why? We're on the road to nuclear war. That's the last thing we want to see, my dear sisters. And as president, what exactly would you do to stop that war? Oh, one is I, 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 I would pull back on the U.S. military support. I would sit down with the elites from the Chinese empire, given all of their forms of regimentation and repression in their own uh, context. Think about our precious Muslim brothers and sisters in China, the Uyghurs. But I would sit down with the Chinese. I would sit down with the Ukrainians. I would sit down with the Russians and we're going to stop this war and we're going to come up with a a plan, a process with a variety of voices heard to make sure that the suffering stops and we understand and we're honest about the larger context of the war. And unfortunately, we just don't get this kind of perspective, you know, in corporate media. Thank God for democracy now and uh, uh, thank God for a few other uh, venues to try to tell the truth about this. Because you know, my dear sister Amy, that I am um, I'm a jazz man in American politics. And jazz is about blues and blues is about catastrophe, lyrically expressed and candidly confronted and artistically transfigured. And catastrophes have to be wrestled with. It can be ecological ones. It can be economic ones of grotesque wealth inequality. It can be social ones, political ones, psychic ones. And then there is swing, which is a different conception of time. So we have ways of authorizing a better future given what seem to be all of the closed roots, all of the foreclosures, all of the alternatives trumped. So you have to make sure that the vitality and energy that you have swings in such a way that you never lose hope in having solidarity with oppressed people around the world. And of course, the third element is improvisation. And improvisation about what? Well, it's not just an artistic skill. The Ron Carter's geniuses like that still alive uh, remind us. It's also a form of practical wisdom. As freedom fighters, we've got to be improvisational. We got to be flexible. We got to be fluid. We got to be protein. We got to learn how to listen. We can't be dogmatic. We can't be ossified. We can't be petrified in how we look at the world. And right now, we have to have presidential debates and politics in which people who look at the world look at the world through the lens of what the great Franz Fanon called the wretched of the earth. Poor people and working people, no matter what color, gender, sexual orientation, national identity, or region. Cornell, you were a surrogate for Bernie Sanders. In fact, in 2016, um, he chose you as one of the people um, to write the Democratic Party platform. Have you talked to him about your campaign, you deciding to go outside the two-party system? He ran as an, although he is an independent and a socialist, he ran inside the Democratic Party. And has he given you advice? No, no, I haven't talked to Bernie recently. We just did a wonderful event uh, based on his wonderful book with Brother John Nichols uh, uh, there in Brooklyn Academy of Music. We had a wonderful time, Sister Jane, and my 
beloved wife and the heat that we, we had a wonderful time with him. And Bernie will always be my brother. I've got a forever love for that brother. We just have disagreements. I don't think he would be surprised, though, because I, of course, supported the Greens. Sister Jill Stein, uh, after I supported him, just like I'd go back to the great Ralph Nader. And a lot of people uh, try to view those two as spoilers. They're not spoilers at all. You had mediocre neoliberal candidates who could not galvanize the public, so you don't blame it on the weaker parties. And you'll never, we will never actually be able to deal with the escalating fascism in America with milquetoast neoliberalism. You just end up with caretaker government. You end up with postponing the collapse of democracy, as my dear brother Jeff Stout says. Well, you have to get at the roots of fascism, which means... I'm going to Trump country, Sister Amy. I'm going to talk to those white brothers and talk to those white sisters and say, quit scapegoating the most vulnerable. Let us confront the most powerful. I don't have a minute for any kind of xenophobia, but at the same time, I know you're catching hell. I know many of you have been losers in corporate globalization. You've been pushed against the wall by big monopolies and, mono and, and, and oligopolies. You have difficulty trying to engage in any kind of unionization. You have to transform and transpose and filter your fears through different means rather than following a neo-fascist Pied Piper. we got to be able to speak to these <laughs> oh folks directly good. and as fellow citizens. And I plan to do that. Now, of course, I come out of the black tradition. And so uh, I've got to wrestle with my own black bourgeoisie. i got to wrestle with my own black politicians who reinforce the neoliberal hegemony in the black community. And i got to do it lovingly, but I'm going to do it in a very direct way that they in many ways have given up on the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. They've become intoxicated too often with the felicities of bourgeois existence intoxicated with the wine of the world as the great Negro national anthem lift every voice says. But we got black poor, black working people catching hell, mass incarceration, crime against humanity. Who's a major architect of mass incarceration? Joe Biden. Invasion occupation of Iraq. How many precious Iraqis killed? At least half a million. Iraqi life has exactly the same value as life anywhere else in the world. As a Palestinian life, a Jewish life, a Lithuanian life, an Ethiopian life, Mormon life, whatever. Professor West, I wanted to go to one of your first campaign videos, which features a clip of an interview you did with podcaster Joe Rogan. Um, last year, mm. Spotify faced a wave of calls to remove Rogan from its platform per, for promoting misinformation about COVID-19. But also, after this video resurfaced, showing Rogan using the N-word on his show two dozen times. I just want to play a clip. You know, saying the word... I already said he is just like dang. she's calling you an like this boy that he's an that starts calling him. You had people like um, India RA and others um, actually pull their uh, music from Spotify. She would later put it back on uh, and said she felt like she'd accomplished a lot in pointing out what he was doing, especially in using the N-word. Can you talk about why you featured him in your campaign ad? Well, one is it's an attempt to 
show that we have to have a realignment, which means you have to be able to speak to people you have some deep disagreements with. Mm. And uh, I mean, Brother Joe Rubin, you know, he said a number of things that I have deep disagreements with. I don't think that censorship, for the most part, is the proper or appropriate way. I, I, I really don't. I think that uh, people must be free to express themselves, but you would hope that they would have respect for others, especially uh, uh, black folk, indigenous peoples, gay brothers, lesbians, sisters, Jews, Muslims, Arabs, those who traditionally have been, been, been degraded. Uh, but I think it's very important that we have conversations across ideological and political lines, and therefore, they're going to say it's sometimes some things that we have to call into question. We keep them accountable. I'm glad that the great NDNRE uh, did that. that uh, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, that she has a right to do that as well to keep him accountable. Uh, but I am suspicious of this censorship because usually the censorship in the end zeroes in on freedom fighters, love warriors, the wounded healers. You think of the great Paul Robeson, you think of Claudia Jones, you think of W.B. Du Bois, you think of Luisa Marino, who I mentioned, one of the greatest of the Latino freedom fighters of the year. Uh, in the last 150 years, who was deported to Guatemala because she supposedly had communist associations oh. and so forth. So that that kind of censorship is something that I'm very, very uh, uh, suspicious of. I've got deep libertarian sensibilities in that regard. Um, Indy Ari also said she's against cancel culture and ultimately went back on Spotify. That's, that's um, <clears throat> So, uh, you know, Democracy Now!, we ask very critical questions. I also want to read from a New Republic article about your candidacy and about the People's Party. The article states, quote, while the party began in 2017 with noble roots to form a new political party independent from corporate money and influence, it's been mired in troubling allegations as well as broader organizational dysfunction, numerous sources of corroborated sexual harassment allegations against party founder Nick Rana. Last year, former party member Paula Jean Swearingen said she witnessed Rana try to force himself onto former party executive director Zana Day, who confirmed the allegations herself. Numerous party board members were apparently forced out for encouraging investigations into the allegations and questioning whether Brana was still fit to lead the party, unquote. Brana has also praised the prominent anti-vaxxer Robert Kennedy Jr., who's also running for president, but as a Democrat. He described Kennedy as a, quote, courageous leader whose environmental and vaccine advocacy has illuminated issues that few dare to confront. Um, so so he's the founder of the party that you're running with, the People's Party. Talk about why you chose the People's Party and if you would like to respond to those allegations. Um, and also the bigger point of why you didn't choose, for example, if you wanted to be outside the race, the Green Party, which has more ballot access. But that's a lot there, Cornell. Yeah, no, indeed. And I appreciate that question, too, my dear sister. I mean, I mean, I have a great love for my Green Party brothers and sisters. I've worked twice with them, and so I have nothing uh, against their third-party operation. It would be nice if we had even a coming together, but that's something that is for a different show. But in terms of the history of the People's Party, you know, I was there at the founding. There's no doubt about that. And uh, I've been a, a kind of honorary 
honorary member of the board, even though I haven't participated, so I haven't followed all of the insides and outsides of what has happened. It strikes me that there's been some very bad and ugly moments. There's no doubt about that, but I don't want to adjudicate as to who actually is guilty or who's actually innocent, because I just don't know. But there has to be accountability, and especially when it comes to sexual harassment to the sisters of any color, that those are very, very important uh, uh, issues to wrestle with and very serious charges in that regard. But as I said before, that for me, I, I wanted to be able to bring a serious critique to bear on the corporate duopoly. And uh, uh, the People's Party, in its inception and in its vision, is a populist one. So you got a number of different voices, heterogeneous. It's got a, it is very loose. A lot of people say, well, isn't an organization at all? I mean, it does anything, hold it together, and so forth and so on. Well, that, that, we shall see. Those are very important questions. I don't want to act as if uh, uh, that they aren't serious challenges. Uh, but I think that uh, if we can deliver uh, in such a way that we are treating each and every working person and poor people of any color with great respect in this campaign. If we can raise voices to shape the discourse and dialogue in this campaign, if we can not just bring pressure to bear, but begin to point out that the choice between the neo-fascist brother Trump criminal in so many ways, and the milk toast Biden, who's so tied in the corporate wealth and corporate power, they can have austerity in the recent debt ceiling agreement and still allow military expansion, that we might be able to go much further than a lot of people think, a lot of people think. But that history, you know, has to be wrestled with. I don't, I don't want to downplay that at all. I just hope that we really do keep the focus, though, on um, uh, um, what can be done at this particular moment. Not to erase the history, but to make sure that as we make history in this moment, that we are doing all and everything we can. So, Cornell West, what sure would you do? And working people are at the center. And what would you do about immigration rights right now in this country? About reproductive rights right now in this country? And about this incredible threat to the country, the greatest domestic violence threat, which is white supremacy. You were at the Unite the Right rally um, in Virginia, not participating in it, but there when you saw the neo-Nazis march threatening you. Absolutely. I mean, Brother Martin used to say that the bombs that we drop abroad land at home. The militarism around the world comes back to haunt us. And we've got police departments that are militarized. You have to break the back of the culture of silence of the police departments that think they can get away with mistreating it, brutalizing, sometimes murdering fellow citizens. And as you know, those fellow citizens are disproportionately black and brown, but it includes all colors in terms of police murders every year. The Washington Post and other newspapers keep track of. But you've got to, as, as, as a president, you've got to use whatever charisma, whatever language, whatever 
once you can to try to ensure that you set an atmosphere such that mechanisms of accountability, not just in police departments, but at the workplace. We need workers control that Rick Wolf and others have talked about, not just at the workplace, but in our cultural life. The organized greed has been on steroids, commodify everything, everything for sale, everybody's for sale. That must be radically called into question. And as a leader, you call for spiritual awakening, moral reckoning, and try to, in some sense, exemplify that, not just in your policies, you see, but in your tone. Cornell, we have 10 seconds. In your vision. Well, I want to thank you so much. But, but, but immigration, though, you got to treat each immigrant with dignity. Oh, that's the beginning part, but I know we got a longer discussion on that. Dr. Cornell West has just announced he's running for president with the People's Party, philosopher, author, critic, actor, civil rights activist, and professor of philosophy and Christian practice at Union Theological Seminary, author of many books. Greetings from... Oh, my. What are we supposed to say to that, Rama? Place the violent fire. We're just getting started. This is going to be quite a year, everyone. Quite a year. All right, so let's have the numbers. We're going to the uh, 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POW. And I just wanted to make a comment that I have been to the Kalalau Valley on the back side there of Kauai numerous times and I've walked all the way to the very top and then there's another valley that goes uh, into the center of Kauai and it's the most pristine most gorgeous um, there's nobody living there you can go in a helicopter and take the a look and the and oh yes no, 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 no humans no. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah it, it is and it has the most rainfall of any place on earth every year and that's what nurtures and keeps it all gorgeous so uh, let's visualize that all over this planet Cynthia Rose Young Slosser used to say let's roll up these sidewalks <laughs> mm. alright so you want to give that number one more time, Rama? 720-716-7301. And the PIN code is 353-863-POUND. Okay, we'll see you there. And we'll be uh, just a moment. Okay, namaste for now. Then we'll be right back here on BBS Radio. Best radio in the universe. The top of the next hour. Okay, righto. Ciao.
precious heart, thank you for joining us for our weekly vlog. Due to the shifts of energy, vibration, and consciousness that Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her experienced during the powerful eclipse series we were just blessed with, the heavens are rejoicing. The eclipse series began with a new moon solar eclipse on April 21st, the day before Earth Day. Joining in that global effort were the solar logos from suns beyond suns. As billions of lightworkers around the world focused on healing the atrocities that humanity has inflicted on the elemental kingdom and the body of Mother Earth, the solar logos bathe the earth with unparalleled solar flares, CMEs, and coronal mass ejections. This monumental influx of new solar light codes built in momentum throughout the entire eclipse series. On May 1st, St. Germain and Mother Mary began their month-long activity of light involving the violet flame of cosmic forgiveness and humanity's initiations in Mother Mary's temple of the Immaculate Heart in the Inner Plains. This divine intervention prepared the masses of humanity at a cellular level for the events that would take place on the WESAC full moon eclipse on May 5th. On that sacred day, through the unified efforts of heaven and earth, 
Mother Earth reached a critical mass of comprehensive divine love that created an unstoppable shift that allowed the mighty Elohim to inbreathe Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her a quantum leap up the bridge to freedom, which connects heaven and earth. This cosmic in-breath breathed Mother Earth into the initial frequencies of a brand new solar reality. I know that from outer appearances that seems impossible. But our Father, Mother, God, and the company of heaven have assured us that it is true. In order to help humanity comprehend that truth, the beings of light are reminding us, as they have many times, that the number of unawakened souls who are committed to wreaking havoc on earth and trying to block Earth's ascension process is a minuscule fraction of the 8 billion sons and daughters of God embodied on Earth who are adding their light and love to the world in myriad ways every single day. A few days after Mother Earth ascended into the initial impulse, of her new solar reality. Astronomers reported spotting the largest cosmic explosion ever witnessed. It is 10 times brighter than any known exploding star or supernova. This is just the beginning of the celestial events we will now be able to perceive from Mother Earth's new, more rarefied position in the cosmos. On June 4th, we experienced the third full moon festival of spring, which takes place during the full moon in the sun cycle of Gemini. That global celebration is known as the Goodwill Festival of Humanity. During that full moon, the path of divine love that was greatly amplified by Jesus during the full moon in the sun cycle of Aries and the enlightenment of Gautama Buddha that was greatly amplified during the full moon in the sun cycle of Taurus joined together as one buoyant, joyous influx of light. That gift from on high was received and acknowledged around the world through the goodwill of awakening humanity. At this moment, that precious light is still reverberating through the atmosphere, blessing all life on this planet. Our Father, Mother, God, and the company of heaven want us to know that it is the frequency of prana within humanity's life force and our newly balanced masculine and feminine holy breath 
that will sustain the vibration that will allow the presence of Mother Earth to remain in her new solar reality. For this reason, our beloved God parents are breathing a higher level of divine intelligence through the prana in every holy breath we take. The divine intent of this assistance is to help each and every one of us stretch our consciousness into higher and higher levels of comprehension so that we will fully understand on a conscious level the guidance we are being given now that will help us to sustain Mother Earth in her new solar reality. Today we have been given a powerful visualization that will assist us in comprehending what is occurring now in this new solar reality with every breath we take. Initially, this visualization may seem complicated, but once you become familiar with it, step by step, through a little practice, it will become automatic. As you focus on this visualization, know that this is both a wondrous opportunity and a tremendous responsibility that we are being trusted with by our Father, Mother God. If you have the heart call to join with me and lightworkers around the world for this activity of light, please do so now. This gift from on high is stated in the first person so that each of us will know that every word is referring to us personally and collectively. I am the holy breath of God sustaining Mother Earth's new solar reality. I am my I am presence, and I am one with my Father, Mother, God. My fifth dimensional crystalline solar light bodies are pulsating within the scintillating flame of the immaculate concept that is blazing in the crystalline lotus blossom in the newly ascended heart of Mother Earth. My I am presence is one with the I am presence of every man, woman, and child on earth. Collectively, humanity's I am presences now merge into one I am presence, which is cradling Mother Earth and all life evolving upon her within the divinity of our unified heart flame. My individual I am presence now expands and expands into a luminous being of light 
that is holding the collective I am presence of all humanity and Mother Earth within its immortal, victorious, threefold heart flame. Now, the heart flame in my fifth dimensional crystalline solar-like bodies pulsating in the heart of Mother Earth and the unified heart flame of all humanity in our collective I am presence and the greatly expanded heart flame in my luminous I am presence are all three merging into one glorious, immortal, victorious, threefold flame. Now, with every holy breath I take, this trinity of God's infinite light is bathing Mother Earth and sustaining her in the initial frequencies of her new, solar reality. Breath by breath, I am consciously aware that humanity, the elemental kingdom, and Mother Earth are now breathing in unison with me as I affirm. I am in breathing through my newly merged immortal victorious threefold heart flame the highest frequencies of God's divinely intelligent prana and life force that I am capable of assimilating this holy breath ascends into my spiritual brain centers and my physical brain structure restoring renewing and resurrecting every facet of my brain to its full divine potential. My holy in-breath now ascends through the fully opened crown chakras in my fifth-dimensional crystalline solar light bodies in humanity's collective I am presence and my expanded luminous I am presence into the very heart of my Father, Mother, God. Instantaneously, my holy in-breath absorbs all of the infinite light in the heart of my God-parents. Now, on my out-breath, This infinite light descends back through the crown chakras of my luminous I am presence, humanity's collective I am presence, and my fifth dimensional crystalline solar light bodies into my newly merged threefold flame. As I continue my out-breath, the infinite light I absorbed within the heart of God now flows through my heart chakra into Mother Earth's crystal grid system, blessing every facet of life belonging to or serving Mother Earth. 
I am now consciously aware that with every in-breath and out-breath, my Father, Mother, God's infinite light and comprehensive divine love are now creating the foundation for the tangible manifestation of the patterns of perfection for Mother Earth's new solar reality. As I continue this living, breathing activity of light day by day, my I am presence will perpetually consecrate my thoughts, feelings, words, and actions with loving gratitude for my gift of life and the selfless service my Father, Mother, God, and the legions of light serving the evolutions of Earth are rendering to humanity the elemental kingdom and Mother Earth. And so it is, beloved, I am that I am. Dear one, as you become more and more familiar with this holy breath, it will become an automatic activity of light with every breath you take. God bless you. I look forward to being with you next week.
continue to relax. Remember that you have a light body that you travel in often while your physical body sleeps at night. And in your light body often you travel to greater realms doing work of a higher activity. It is in your light body that we will take this journey together. I would like you to imagine that you are walking up a golden stairwell. Steps that lead up into the heavens that are made of pure gold. Imagine infinite light on either side of the stairwell. And as you see yourself slowly walking up these golden steps, visualize just up ahead of you is a beautiful angel waiting for you on one of those golden steps. As you arrive at that place, your angel is standing. Your angel takes one of your hands and places its arm around your waist, around the back waist. And you find you begin to gently levitate now as the angel now ascends you up this golden stairwell. As gently with the angel supporting you, you find yourself floating up these golden steps. at the top step ahead is a tube of golden light a shaft of golden light that the angel begins to walk you through on the other end of this shaft of golden light you arrive at a paradise of perfection kingdoms, lands of eternal bliss. Imagine now that you are walking out of this golden shaft of light, and it is a midsummer's day, and you've arrived in beautiful gardens. And in these beautiful cultured gardens, there is a magnificent crystal temple of light. You find yourself walking through the pathways and notice that there are other humans here in their light bodies. You notice the golden glow around your own. You notice beautiful masters of light and angels walking with others through the beautiful gardens. And your angel leads you towards the great crystal temple. This is the temple 
of a great being who has served humankind. That being Melchizedek. This temple holds the ancient order of the sisters and brothers of Melchizedek. And your angel leads you towards the steps, the golden steps of this great temple. Allow your imagination, allow your imagination to come alive. And as you walk up these steps to the temple of Melchizedek, the great doors swing open you're walking down the central aisle of this temple with your angel towards a great altar that is set up on a pedestal. And there upon this altar is a table that holds your book of life and a crystal vase. And on the other side of this table is a great being known as Melchizedek. In the back of the altar are many ascended masters sitting and seated in thrones. Arriving before the table that holds your book of life on it. Magnificent angels come and form a circle behind and you step forward before the table and find yourself placing your hand upon your book of life. You take this crystal goblet beautiful life force liquid within it and imagine that you drink it down and this magnificent being known as Melchizedek now stands before you on the other side of this table and this one asks you for your name and you respond, I am. Melchizedek asks of you as to whence is your home. Again, you respond, I am. Melchizedek again asks of you to name the source of your life. And again you respond, I am. The great being states to you that you have named correctly. of your willingness
to serve the light, to accept your flight to freedom. At this time, I ask that you would, in this great altar of light, affirm into your heart the following truths. Looking deeply into the master's eyes, you affirm, I am come from the light. I love the light. I serve the light. I am supplied and illumined by the light and forever protected. I request, in the name I am that I am, and in the name of Archangel Michael, that my journey into the earth with a history of belief systems and my contracts to evolve through pain and suffering now be severed completely. I am willing to evolve through plateaus of consciousness. Feeling and releasing 
the perfection of my God self through me and into my world. I am here to serve the light. I am that light that cometh into this world. From this day forth, when I state I am, I am not speaking of my lower human self. When I am affirming higher truth, when I state I am, I am always referring to my great God self, the source of all that is good. Relax in the next moment, the goddess of liberty appears before you and you continue to make an oath deep into your being. I am the flag of freedom. I am the flag of liberty and justice. Revealing itself through me and into my world. In the name, love and authority of the I am that I am, I call forth to my own great God self with the assistance of the goddesses of light. to remove and consume from me everything that is not light and not love. I am willing to let go of all that is not light, all that is not love. I am willing to forgive not because I find my sisters and brothers or myself guilty, but rather I forgive because in truth I recognize the innocence within myself and each other. my desire to release the perfection and the freedom of my great God self through me and into my world. 
ready to demonstrate the power of Christ through this human self. I acknowledge there is but one presence, one power, and one intelligence that is the I that is within me. I, in the midst of me, has come that I may have life and have it more abundantly. I shall look to no man or no woman, but rather look continuously to the I in the midst of me as the source of my own infinite supply, health, and dominion of every good thing in my life. Remembering that there is but one I, and my I can express through me, or it can express to me. never forget again, there is but one eye that is the source of all good, and that source within me and every other person, and I am grateful, and am now committed taking my flight to freedom and expressing that freedom each and every day. Relax. And imagine that in the next moment, a shaft of gold and yellow light descends from the ceiling of this temple. And your angel calls you around to stand in the shaft of golden light from the heavens. And you stand before Melchizedek. And this great being takes your hands in his hands. And gently the two of you begin to ascend up this magnificent shaft of golden light. And there you are, ascending up into the heavens, into a magnificent golden sun, a golden star, the birthplace of your soul, the great central sun, with Melchizedek at your side, you find yourself walking into a beautiful, beautiful sun of eternal light, 
because it leaves you to walk deeper into the light, an endless sea of light in every direction. And just ahead of you, there is a portal of a rosy pink light. But you find yourself walking through this portal of pink energy. As you come out of it, still in that eternal place of infinite light, you see the Heavenly Mother and Father walking towards you. They have taken form to greet you. And as the Heavenly Mother and Father come upon you, with arms stretched and their eternal, unconditional love for you. They embrace you in the diamond heart of their love and look upon you as they originally did before you left the source of your creation. They see you in your shining innocence Here I leave you, just you and the Heavenly Mother and Father. And this is that time to have that private conversation, just you and them. Their love for you is infinite and always has been. Just take a few minutes and just be in that energy.
presence in your body. are all servants of peace. Thank you, Rama. Had new, new uh, color, sound, and vibrational healing here tonight.
Tinker is singing with us. Mother greetings. ask at this time, Mother, calling all angels is the Starfleet command, and may our sisters and brothers all have everything needed, wanted, and desired to be who we are. And yes, roll up the sidewalks, roll up, the, roll up those streets where the streets are paved with gold. Greetings, Mother. Greetings, children of Ra. Oh, greetings, Alcyone. As well. We are all present. Yes. Must uh, be something up in the zoo. Lots of stuff going on. Oh. It's not about boxes. <laughs> it's about ascension. No secrets in the universe anyway, right, Mother? No. Well, how Every about those weapons of war? Why don't they just stop them? Stop them from working? It takes all of us to shift the energy field. The quantum field responds. <coughs> we have reached critical mass. There are things unfolding that our wayward children cannot stop. And it is the ascension for all beings. It's a fact, Jack. <laughs> I found the bus, Gus, and set ourselves free. Yes. What's unfolding is this new heaven, new earth. That is being brought into focus. Love is the answer. And we are being given a huge lesson how to form divine government. Dr. West has given ideas how to change this story where everyone is important 
the whole of this can't be part of it. It's the whole thing. It is, Mother. It is. This little fiasco going on right now on the planet is it is minuscule compared to what's unfolding as all of heaven is here mm-hmm. saying let go of the old stories of stuffing your old stuff into compartments and hmm, gotta let it all go into the violet flame it gets transmuted back into living love living light just like what's unfolding with the suns out in our local systems and they are expanding lifting themselves higher this radiant light is pouring into this realm as well Friday night all the folks gotta stretch those muscles as it were Whatever the issue is going on right now. Mother, the air, the flyers, the oligarchs, it's time, Mother, come. Yes, it is time. (sighs) Time to wash it all away. Mm. And love can bring new understandings to this story here. As we embrace what is coming forth on many levels many of our children grandfathers fathers mothers daughters sons all participated in these stories that are going to be coming forth where many of the people of earth 
have seen things, experienced things that have not been brought to the public eye until recently. And you could say because of the time we're in. Yes, Pluto's doing this dance between zero degrees Aquarius, Pluto, zero degrees Capricorn, back and forth here for a bit of time as we move fully into the age of Aquarius. Pluto has to dig it all up. All the skeletons, all the stuff. Civilizations upon civilizations upon civilizations built up. Uh -oh. it, it is Let's say it's unfolding here. The stories hmm, about this ancient, ancient passion play we're all involved in when we do from the very beginning how deep it was gonna get it really is deep mother how deep has it gotta go until now isn't this aren't we good we take the hip boots have to go <laughs> it's that deep Oh. It's about our children who have abused their power without love. Mm -hmm. And we bring it back into the seriousness and the focus of the fact that Accountability is on the table. And it is about this cosmic story that we have been coming here. And all of us interacting in this story called Earth longer than we care to say. Um, the things that are present, whistleblowers that Dr. Greer will bring forward in the days coming forth, I don't say 
put them in the pilot plane and send more love. Takes a lot of chutzpah to get up there and talk about what folks have seen. Not all of it is pretty. Some of it is about parts and other parts and uh-huh. let's say parts are parts and it's gotta bring closer to the collective trauma that the planet has gone through in the beings have come here and gone over the rainbow. Hmm, maybe not by choice, but by folks who quote unquote were just following orders. It's time for a healing on many levels. The people of Earth want this closer. The small group of folks that think they control the treasures of the planet are sadly mistaken. Cannot buy a planet cannot buy a solar system for any price. Each planet, each civilization, autonomous to its own self, its own awareness Mm. of evolving into the next stage as we move higher up into the realms of oneness and let's say as you hear the testimonies some of them are graphic some are quite bizarre with what folks have seen and had to do like Emory Smith was a doctor had to do hmm, autopsies on some of us who were not from Earth. Not a whole lot of fun. Doing autopsies on ETs? Yes. Emory Smith has talked about it in many of his episodes. Yeah. Cosmic disclosure. Yeah. And what the heck did he find that was so unique and different than what you would do with another person on the earth? Oh, let us say he had to record, document the evidence that was there. And what was there that was unique? the varied life forms that have been coming to Earth. Oh, you mean they just look a little different in their shapes? Ah, and 
our systems, how things function, rather than stomachs or colons or hearts. Or rather than, well, what else are you talking about? How, how what things function? <laughs> Mother. Speaking about how we're all different, but unique in the same, that we're. Can you give an example of something that was any different or any more unique of someone from an off-planet system from here the, and here? The, I mean, Sasquatch, how do you find the Sasquatch people have two hearts, not one. Oh, there you go. And they have a different circulatory system than the humans do. They're humans, too. Different form of human. Well, they're shaped, yes. Yes. They're a little furrier, too. <laughs> yes, stronger, much more. Taller. Taller. They... Their abilities are fully evolved, as you all are as well. Well, I don't know how they can do that with an autopsy. They can't tell those things with an autopsy, right? Let's say there are many stories that are going to come forth. I mean, you can find out things from the living easier than from the dead, I would think. I'm not sure. Yes. We're just speaking about some of the events that have gone on to get to this day. Oh, my goodness. The shenanigans in between is just uh, over the top, mother. We all serve under the banner of love. It is a mutual cooperative effort to uh, seek out new life forms, new realities, just like the uh, start of that story, Star Trek. Uh, How many years has this mission Eons of time. It is part of this hmm, awareness that's occurring right now as we can sit at the various councils, whether they are campfires, council fires along the river bank or the councils on Saturn or Titan or hmm Pleiades it is we all have a part to share in these stories mm-hmm. now yes as closure and healing happens for all humans, wherever they are in this local system of worlds. Yes. It's a most auspicious time to be here. At the same time, hmm, send more love to these folks. They're on the razor's edge.
Yeah, I'm saying, this is a delicate balance, isn't it, Mother, to do this without any more... No more violence, please. No more nukes. Well, yeah, but I'm talking about the inner nuke, you know. That is about healing the issues inside. That's the most important part. Yes. Yeah. Yes. One would feel like there's a nuclear war going on inside of them. They need a lot of help. Let's put it that way. Uh And it is about love. Radical, unconditional, divine love. There are magical things unfolding in very good ways. We would just say It is unfolding. The time is now where get out in nature. The sun is rising to its hmm, height. That summer solstice. Mm-hmm. And then sun goes down. And we watch it return. Winter solstice, the return of the king. These cycles that are unfolding right now, it is the greatest time to be here. We are part of this unique moment to shift the quantum field and maybe quantum field doesn't need shifting we need to shift <laughs> our reality to get in sync with the quantum field and going around in circles here better pass the talking stick we what, got, we got about 11 days till it's uh, summer solstice. <coughs> yes. World Peace Prayer Day by Gilkey something, something has to happen to take these, take this uh, monopoly and bust it up, from Mother. Oh, Mama. All it takes is one. There's only one of us here. Neo said, I am the one. Here's the way. There are many that are coming forth that are saying, Look within. Each one of us can shift this in an important way. Yes, it is so magnificent to behold. We, uh, let's say, commend you for sticking it out here. Oh my goodness. 
it's been a challenge. Yes. And gotta take this with you. <laughs> it's how you do it. Yeah, I mean, what's this burying of bodies all about every day of the week? Mummies. <laughs> what? Mummies embalming this idea, wrap the body up and save it for later. Yeah, well, mm. I did that to Tutankhamun's Comets body. They just exhumed it somewhere along the line here. Yes. They forgot or maybe conveniently didn't talk about how the gold dust can restore the mummies back to living beings. Oh, my. Yeah. Then you got two of you, Rama. Mm, Mother, Agnaton, who shows up like that. A little more things in heaven and earth that are about to come forth. And we better shut up. (laughs) Thank you, Mother. We, we, We better check out the next thing, I know. Thank you, thank you. In the light of the most radiant one. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayon. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayon. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sabayon. Ilya, Ilya, Ilya. Yodhe, Bote, Adonai, Vasu, Namaste. Hi, Ram. Oh. Where did you go? Um, I remember being in a purple pond, and the water was just kind of purple, violet, like somebody poured great Kool-Aid into the water. <laughs> But it was very interesting because the water had an effervescence. It was sparkling and um, like this giant pool of sparkling water that was purple, yet it had something to do with the nature of the water itself. And I... I'm not sure, but I think I was on um, Venus in one of the liquid light pools. Uh I'm not sure, but that's what it seemed like. It was just a complete um, 
like I could go to sleep in the water and not get up. <laughs> That's how it felt. Liquid light lakes, huh? Yeah. Well, <laughs> did you get a particular message? Just to stay in that that infinite oneness, the ocean of bliss, and don't go anywhere else. Because oh. go anywhere else, the water's going to get choppy. Oh, we got to go through the accountability, mother. Yeah, I'm not mother, yeah. I mean, Rama, Mama. <laughs> got to know how to swim those waves. Yeah, surf the Zubaya. Yep. Okay. We're going to surf the way right through time for Amy. Oh, praise the violet fire. Okay, let's turn this on. Um, This is Democracy Now! Donald Trump has been indicted on seven counts by a federal grand jury in Florida. This is historic. Full stop. Indicted again. Donald Trump has become the first president to face federal criminal charges as the Department of Justice indicts him over the mishandling of classified documents after leaving office. Charges include violating the Espionage Act, conspiracy, and making false statements. We'll speak to a former federal prosecutor about the stick case. Then, in a surprise decision, the Supreme Court upholds the Voting Rights Act by rejecting a racially gerrymandered voting map in Alabama. Wow. The Supreme Court just upheld the protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in ordering the state of Alabama to redraw its congressional maps. What an amazing victory. A victory not only for Alabama black voters, but a victory for democracy itself. We'll speak to one of the plaintiffs in the case, as well as the American Civil Liberties Union. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Justice Department has indicted former President Donald Trump on multiple felony charges, accusing him of mishandling classified documents and obstructing the government's attempts to recover them. Trump is the first former president ever to face federal criminal charges. In a video posted on a social media platform, Truth Social, Trump lashed out against the Biden administration, insisting I'm an innocent man. Our country is going to hell, and they come after Donald Trump, weaponizing the Justice Department, weaponizing the FBI. We can't let this continue to go on because it's ripping our country to shreds. Trump reportedly faces seven charges, including the willful retention of national defense information in violation of the Espionage Act, 
conspiracy to obstruct justice, and false statements and representations. The charges bring maximum sentences ranging from 5 to 20 years in prison. Trump will reportedly be arraigned at a federal courthouse in Miami, Florida on Tuesday. We'll have more on Trump's indictment after headlines. Hundreds of climate change-fueled wildfires continue to scorch Canada, where tens of thousands have been displaced and residents have dealt with weeks of hazardous smoke-filled air. Here in the United States, the Northeast is beginning to see a glimpse of relief after experiencing its worst air quality in recorded history as the smoke pushes south and westward, prompting alerts in states including Indiana and Kentucky. But New York Governor Kathy Hochul warned New Yorkers to remain vigilant. We saw yesterday some very disturbing numbers in New York City. Um, they're still They've come down from the 400 level, but we should never get complacent and think that the 200 air quality quotient index is uh, satisfactory. The message is this is not over. You know, it's, we might get a little respite, but I don't want people to let down their guard and to become complacent about this because we have to be prepared for the winds to shift. The U.S. Supreme Court handed a surprise victory to the Voting Rights Act Thursday as it rejected Alabama's gerrymandered congressional maps that disempowered black voters. Justices John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh joined the court's three liberal justices in ordering Alabama's legislature to redraw a second black majority district. The gerrymandered maps left only one of seven congressional districts with a black majority, despite African-Americans making up more than a quarter of Alabama's population. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. In another Supreme Court ruling Thursday, justices voted to uphold the right of state nursing home residents and other recipients of Medicaid to sue if states violate their rights. The 7-2 to two vote came as a relief to many who worried the conservative court could seek to weaken government health programs. One public health expert explained, quote, the case is to Medicaid what Dobbs was to abortion. And more Supreme Court news. Seven out of the nine justices released their financial disclosure reports for 2022 this week. Justices Samuel Alito and scandal-ridden Justice Clarence Thomas were given 90-day extensions to file. ProPublica recently revealed Thomas received luxury travel and other gifts from Republican megadonor Harlan Crow for decades without reporting them. The Biden administration said Thursday it's halting all food assistance to Ethiopia, citing a widespread and coordinated campaign to divert the aid away from people in need. Reuters reports USAID believes the food has been seized by Ethiopian military units. The U.S. is by far the largest donor of humanitarian aid to Ethiopia, where some 20 million people are experiencing food insecurity due to the recently ended war in Tigray and a persistent drought fueled by the climate crisis. Israeli soldiers shot a Palestinian journalist in the head during a raid in the city of Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. 22-year-old Momen Samarin 
was hospitalized in serious condition after he was struck by a rubber-coated steel bullet as he documented Israeli troops' demolition of an apartment building Wednesday evening. The building was home to the family of a man who allegedly carried out a bombing attack in Jerusalem last November. Maman Samreen was one of six people hospitalized as hundreds of Palestinians gathered to protest the demolition, which officials condemned as collective punishment a war crime. Four sisters were displaced along with their father and mother. We as Palestinians are used to experiences like this. It is not the first home we destroyed and will not be the last. The demolition activities are all about how much they hate us. The European Union has agreed on a new plan for hosting asylum seekers following years of debate and infighting. The new proposal calls for more involvement from nations that are not on Europe's southern coast where asylum seekers first reach the continent. Those countries could either host more incoming migrants or contribute to a joint fund managed by Brussels. The reform also sets tougher rules for processing migrants, including expediting the expulsion of people deemed unlikely to win asylum claims. Oxfam blasted the arrangement, saying, quote, EU countries plan to buy themselves out of their responsibility to welcome refugees. These proposals will not fix the chronic deficiencies in the EU asylum system. Instead, they signal the EU's desire to barricade Europe from asylum seekers, Oxfam said. In related news, at least five people drown and dozens are missing after three migrant boats capsized in the Mediterranean off the Tunisian coast in recent days. More than 2,000 people died at sea while trying to reach Europe last year. Chinese, Cuban, and U.S. officials have dismissed reports by the Wall Street Journal alleging an agreement between China and Cuba to build a multi-billion dollar electronic spy installation on the island to intercept communications from the United States. China's foreign minister denounced the story as slander. In Havana, Cuba's deputy foreign minister, Carlos Fernandez de Pocio, called the report totally mendacious and unfounded while pointing to the U.S. military's role in the region. We reject any foreign military presence in Latin America and the Caribbean, including many bases and military forces of the United States, especially the military base that illegally occupies part of the national territory in the Guantanamo province. And a graphic warning to our audience on this next story. In Mexico, authorities are investigating the extrajudicial execution of five men by Mexican military in the border city of Nuevo Laredo. A video posted on social media shows a group of soldiers pulling the men from their vehicle, beating them and lining them up against a wall before fatally shooting them. This comes as Zapatista indigenous leaders marched in Mexico City Thursday, protesting the intensifying violence and attacks on their autonomous communities by paramilitary groups in the southern state of Chiapas. We are asking for attacks from the paramilitary groups to stop. We are talking about groups that are permitted, financed, or armed by the Mexican army that attacked Zapatista communities. Right now they are teaming up with organized crime groups that are holding Chiapas on the brink of a civil war. And longtime televangelist Pat Robertson has died at the age of 93. 
1960, Robertson created the Christian Broadcasting Network and for decades used its flagship program, the 700 Club, as a platform for homophobia, religious bigotry, and racist hate speech. In 1988, Robertson ran for the Republican Party's presidential nomination, taking second place in the Iowa caucus. Robertson's strong performance cemented the Christian coalition he founded as a major force within the Republican Party. In 2001, Robertson blamed liberals, feminists, and gay people for the 9-11 attacks. He once claimed AIDS was, quote, God's way of weeding his garden, unquote. Robertson also raised funds for Contra death squads in Nicaragua and publicly called for the assassination of world leaders, including Libya's Muammar Gaddafi and Venezuela's Hugo Chavez. In the mid-1990s, during the Rwandan genocide, Robertson appealed to his audience for money to fly relief supplies to Rwandan refugees in Zaire, now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Instead of carrying humanitarian aid, planes bought by Robertson's charity mostly transported equipment for a diamond mining operation. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report, I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, indicted again. Donald Trump has become the first president to face federal criminal charges as a grand jury in Florida indicts him over the mishandling of classified documents after leaving office. Trump is expected to surrender to authorities in Miami on Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. The indictment remains sealed. According to news accounts, Trump has been indicted on seven charges, which could mean many, many counts. On Thursday night, Trump's attorney, Jim Trustee, appeared on CNN to discuss what he knew about the charges from the summary sheet. It does have some language in it that suggests what the seven charges would be. Not 100% clear that all of those are separate charges, but they basically break out from an Espionage Act charge, which is ludicrous under the facts of this case, and I, I can certainly explain it, and several obstruction-based type charges, and then false statement charges, which are actually, again, kind of a, a crazy stretch just from the facts as we know it. So there's a lot to pick out eventually from the defense side, but that appears to be the charges and it appears to be something that will uh, get off the ground on Tuesday. The indictment stems from an investigation by special counsel Jack Smith, who's also probing Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election and his role in the January 6th insurrection. Trump could still face additional federal charges in those investigations. Two months ago, Trump was also indicted in New York on 34 felony counts for falsifying business records to cover up hush money payments made to adult film star Stormy Daniels and others. The new federal charges come nearly a year after the FBI found 300 classified documents during searches of Trump's properties, including at his Mar-a-Lago estate in Florida. Part of the Justice Department's case may rely on Trump's own comments. CNN recently reported Trump had acknowledged on tape during a 2021 meeting that he had kept secret military information about Iran. According to a transcript, Trump said, quote, secret. This is secret information. Trump dismissed the indictment, describing it as the, quote, boxes hoax. 
In a post on a social media platform, Trump wrote, quote, I am an innocent man. The charges come at a time when the former president is running again for the White House. On Thursday, his presidential rival, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, blastedly called the weaponization of federal law enforcement. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said the indictment was a, quote, dark day for the country. We're joined right now by Dennis Aftergut. He is a former federal prosecutor, currently of counsel to lawyers defending American democracy. His new piece for the bulwark is titled, No One Above the Law, Trump Indicted on Federal Charges. Dennis, welcome to Democracy Now! Why don't you start off by just responding to this indictment, how historic it is, and what do these counts on conspiracy and espionage mean? Uh, Amy, first, it's a privilege to be here. Uh, historic really doesn't even begin to describe it. Uh, no former president has ever been federally indicted. Now we have a former president who's been indicted by two grand juries in two different jurisdictions, New York and the federal government, on two different sets of facts alleging two different sets of crimes. That does not happen very often, and when it does, it only happens with people who live on the wrong side of the law. With respect to the espionage counts, they are extraordinarily serious. The reported allegation is the one that has been expected. He willfully retained defense-related documents that he was not authorized to have after his presidency ended. We also have the information that you described from the tape that he was talking about them to others, and there may be very serious allegations. We'll need to wait to see the indictment about whether there were any disclosures of top-secret, highly sensitive national security secrets. Uh, Dennis, uh, uh, I wanted to ask you about a couple of things. One is, if there's a conspiracy charge, there is an assumption that there are other people involved in the conspiracy. Uh, what do you make of that? And also, the decision by the Justice Department to uh, do this indictment in uh, Florida rather than Washington, because presumably the documents were taken in Washington, D.C. originally, although they ended up, um, uh, many of them, uh, in Florida. Uh, your sense of why this decision to to uh, conduct the indictment and the trial, presumably in uh, in the in Florida. Uh, that is really an excellent question. Uh, reasonable prosecutors could differ about where it should be indicted under the Sixth Amendment. A defendant is entitled to a trial by an impartial jury in the district where the crime is committed. It's not quite that simple, though, because crimes can be continuing 
and can occur in two jurisdictions. And there's a pretty good argument that that's exactly what happened here. The reason... An issue of conspiracy? I'm sorry? The issue of conspiracy? Uh, the issue of conspiracy, you're absolutely correct. It takes two to tango in a conspiracy. A conspiracy is an agreement by two or more people to commit an unlawful act. They both have to share the intent to do something unlawful. There are reports that there are five sealed indictments, and so they may tell us we need to await the unsealing of those indictments, which may happen on Tuesday at Trump's arraignment. It could happen before. In that issue of conspiracy, who are the possible people there? And of course, we're going to know much more next week. But we learned that Mark Meadows has testified, his former chief of staff, and what that conspiracy could be. Um, you have all this new information about Wolf Nauta, who is um, the valet for Donald Trump uh, in Mar-a-Lago. Um, <clears throat> the flooding of the server room when they said they were emptying the pool, the moving of the boxes from one place to another. And then talk about how serious these charges are. I mean, conspiracy, espionage, these are decades in jail. Uh it's going to be hard for me to improve on what you just said, Amy. <laughs> Walt Mata is the is the most obvious candidate. It's unclear with respect to Meadows. The reports are that Meadows has agreed to plead and uh, is cooperating on that basis. So if that's true, major if there then could be an unindicted co-conspirator, although he was more clearly, by inference, a co-conspirator in removing the documents from Washington. We don't know what his role was in obstructing justice. You need to remember, with respect to the conspiracy to obstruct, that it was 18 months between the time the National Archives first asked for the documents back when the FBI conducted a court-authorized search in August, as you said in your introduction, of 2022, almost a year ago, uh, that recovered uh, at least 100 top, uh, classified documents. So there could have been several people involved in the stall the long, long stall to try to prevent the return of the documents that Trump was unauthorized to possess. Walt Mata would be at the top of the list as the person who is described as having moved the documents right after the subpoena for them. There was a grand jury subpoena in May of 2022. But there are many other people. There's uh, the allegations about gaps in the tapes. And Jack Smith is likely to know 
a lot more that we may find out about when the indictment is revealed and a lot more than that uh, when a trial occurs. Uh, Dennis, I wonder if you could uh, speculate in terms of the political impact of all of this, because clearly for Trump supporters and for perhaps other Americans, there does seem to be a concerted effort uh, by the government to go after uh, after Donald Trump. And this the trials will probably last into the the presidential race itself. Uh, what the? Uh, how do you respond to the issue that uh, that the Speaker McCarthy is saying and and Ron DeSantis or others that the federal government is weaponizing law enforcement? I would say that it is a combination of distraction and projection about what the House is doing, weaponizing law. I would say that the concerted effort is a concerted effort for against a serial lawbreaker. We do not have kings here. We have the rule law, and no one is above it, including a former president. It's a sad day for the country when a former president is indicted and it is a necessary day when the evidence is so serious against him. Were there not an indictment, we would not have a rule of law. We would not have a rule where no one is above all. Dennis Aftergood, I wanted to ask you about a piece you recently co-authored in Salon. Clarence Thomas, Ken Paxton, and Donald Trump, the corrupting influence of oligarchy, in which you write, quote, it's tempting to attribute the scandals now enveloping two right-wing icons, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, to both men's lack of an ethical compass. Resisting that temptation is necessary if we're to learn a larger lesson about the roots of much political corruption in this country. Um, if you can go on from there, and for people who don't know Ken Paxton, he was just impeached by, he, he is the Republican Attorney General of Texas, and was just impeached by the Republican legislature. The point, the central point of that piece is that one needs to look at the structural elements of corruption, and it's not just in this country around the world. And the structural element is this. It's a connection between corruption, oligarchs, people of enormous wealth and influence in society, and right-wing parties. We quote a study out of Germany uh, in which they looked at 104 countries and found a, an elevated level of corruption in countries ruled by right-wing parties. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. People of wealth tend, and this does not apply to every human wealth, of course, they tend to want to preserve the status quo. Or 
return to the past where their rights to do things were unregulated in a laissez-faire kind of economy. And right-wing parties and right-wing politicians stand for the status quo or the past. So it's kind of intuitive that want to capture political leaders who have influence over the economy. It's kind of intuitive that those are going to be people on the right who agree with them ideologically. Well, we're going to link to that piece, um, as well as your piece on, again, this historic indictment of President Donald Trump. He goes to court on Tuesday at 3 o'clock in Miami, and now his home state of Florida. Dennis Aftergood, a former federal prosecutor, is currently of counsel to lawyers defending American democracy. Coming up, a surprise decision of the Supreme Court upholding the Voting Rights Act by rejecting a racially gerrymandered voting map in Alabama. Stay with us. complex thought. We are for the large shape because it has the impact of the unequivocal. We are for platforms because they destroy illusions and reveal truth. The artists were attempting to make art more than just something to look at. They wanted it to be something to be involved in. Something too big to ignore. Slideshow at Free University by La Tigre. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we turn now to a surprise decision by the U.S. Supreme Court that upheld the Voting Rights Act and rejected a racially gerrymandered voting map in Alabama. This is how Democratic Congress member Terry Sewell of Alabama responded. Well, the Supreme Court just upheld the protections of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 in ordering the state of Alabama to redraw its congressional maps. What amazing victory. A victory not only for Alabama black voters, but a victory for democracy itself. In a 5-4 to four ruling, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Brett Kavanaugh sided with the court's liberal justices in finding Alabama's Republican-drawn congressional districts unlawfully disadvantaged black voters, a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bars voting practices that discriminate based on race or color. Plaintiffs argue the map packed and cracked 
voters in Alabama's so-called black belt by crowding many of them into a single district and dispersing the rest into several other districts. The result was that despite the state having a black population greater than 25 percent, just one of its seven congressional districts was minority majority. The court ordered Alabama's legislature to redraw the map so there will be two. When Chief Justice Roberts worked in the Justice Department and White House Counsel's Office during the Reagan administration, documents show he was critical of the Voting Rights Act. But in his opinion Thursday, he said, quote, we find Alabama's new approach to Section 2 compelling, neither in theory nor in practice. Meanwhile, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a 48-page dissent and called the case yet another installment in the disastrous misadventure of the court's voting rights jurisprudence. For more, we're joined by three guests. In Montgomery, Alabama, Kadita Stone is the chief field and campaign strategist at Alabama Forward. She was one of the named plaintiffs in the case. Also in Montgomery, Tish Patel Fox, legal director at the ACLU of Alabama. And with us, Davin Rossborough. He is senior staff attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project, one of several attorneys who represented the plaintiffs, part of that team before the Supreme Court. We welcome you all to Democracy Now! Davin, let's begin with you. The significance of this decision and why so many experts were shocked that Roberts and Kavanaugh joined with the liberal justices in demanding that the uh, gerrymandered districts in Alabama be redrawn. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a really significant decision. And I think um, there is some surprise in, in the, the media and the general public because of the direction the court has been going, particularly regarding race and uh, the Voting Rights Act and voting. But I think what happened here was a majority of the court was compelled by some really clear text and purpose of what Congress did when it amended the Voting Rights Act in 1982, and um, and then the compelling facts of this case, um, that, that this is an incredibly clear violation. If, if this wasn't a violation of the Voting Rights Act, um, it was hard to imagine what could have been. So I think um, hopefully the combination of um, looking at what Congress intended and the purpose of the Voting Rights Act and the incredibly compelling facts uh, put forward in our case um, what really pushed um, those, those justices uh, to find for us. And then, uh, Rossborough, I want to ask you about the, uh, the history of Alabama in repeatedly violating uh, the Voting Rights Act over many years. Uh, and what was different in this particular case? Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, in, in a lot of the, the most famous cases, voting cases to come before the Supreme Court, unfortunately, many of them have come out of Alabama. And um, Alabama's own arguments basically acknowledge the roots of this map. That what they said was that their congressional map has been largely the same since the early 1970s. And of course, in the early 1970s, George Wallace was still governor. Alabama was head-on fighting um, the Voting Rights Act and, and integration and, and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, the one district that gave black voters in Alabama the opportunity to elect candidates of choice only came about also through litigation, and that wasn't until the early 90s. Um, and even then, that, that created sort of carved out one district 
Um, but um, Alabama continued to rely on that and not look at the changing demographics, um, the continuing presence of, of uh, very polarized voting based on race, continuing discrimination and effects of discrimination, and um, continue to try to double down on the status quo. But, but that's not what was required here. Um, and, and I think uh, really uh, all of the different factors that the court is supposed to look at to determine whether there's a violation, um, you know, whether another reasonably configured district can be drawn, whether race already completely infuses the political system, um, and whether the maps are being used in a way that takes advantage of that ongoing discrimination across multiple sectors. Um, those were all present here, and they were present in, in droves. And uh, I, I think that really um, compelled um, the district court findings here, and then the majority of the Supreme Court to affirm that. I want to bring Tish Patel Fox into this conversation. Um, she is also with the ACLU. She is the legal director at the ACLU of Alabama, joining us from Montgomery. Um, were you surprised by this decision, and particularly that Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh both voted with the liberal majority? And what this now means in Alabama, going back to the drawing boards and for other states, this doesn't just now affect Alabama because it sets precedent. Good morning, and thank you for having us. We were not surprised here in Alabama. We had a great deal of faith and confidence that the structure of Section 2 would demonstrate that Alabama had failed once again to meet their constitutional obligations. We were deeply concerned that we would get a new test from the court. But what we saw here was the United States Supreme Court giving a full-throated rejection of Alabama's suggestion that we are now at a point in history where we can move on from the racist past in how black voters were treated. This litigation was intended to ensure that the voices of black voters, that the voices of those who believe Alabama should move in a different direction, that those voices are heard. And we're, we're just thrilled that the rest of the country now gets to see the power of people and movement. And, and Tish Cattell Forbes, what about those who say that this ruling only preserves the status quo, it doesn't really uh, expand or uh, uh, the protections of the Voting Rights Act, uh, especially vis-a-vis -vis the, the uh, decisions of prior years that have reduced its, its influence and power? Well, I think what's important here is the court's recognition that Congress has an important role to play in updating old law to meet the new challenges of the day. And in fact, this court has shown a great deal of restraint in allowing the structure of analysis to remain in place. The court underscored 
that this has been the way to do this analysis for dozens of years and that they see nothing in the legislative record that would suggest that they need to change course. What we know we need is an update to the Voting Rights Act. And this court seems to be signaling Congress that if there are changes to be made, it is Congress's responsibility to do so. We stand ready here in Alabama to send representatives that are going to reflect the true beliefs and needs of the people of Alabama. And today, the Supreme Court has said that must include fair opportunity for black voters to have the candidate of their choice as well. And we are thrilled about that. Kadita Stone is also with us in Montgomery, chief field and campaign strategist at Alabama Forward. Most significantly right now, one of the named plaintiffs in the Supreme Court case about redistricting in Alabama called Allen versus Milligan. Um, Kadita, if you can talk about why you came forward um, to sue around this issue of gerrymandering. Yeah, first I want to say thank you so much for having me. Um, it's an honor. Um, but I, I think a main reason why I decided to sue was just because it, it, I saw a lot of unfairness going on. Um, and it's kind of one of those situations where it's like if no one else will do it, who will? Um, and so that's why I decided to be a part of this um, case and, and take it on. And I'm so glad that I was given the opportunity to do so alongside my amazing co-plaintiffs um, and our amazing legal team. And could you talk about the the impact that this ruling will have on the work you do in Alabama and what you hope and expect that the Alabama legislature will uh, now do? Um, I, will, I would hope and expect the Alabama legislature will go back and, and really take into account uh, the needs of the community and the ways that they have expressed themselves when drawing these maps. Um, I think that's the most important, but also listening to the Supreme Court. Um, they said to redraw the map um, in a fair and equitable way, so I would hope that um, our legislator will do that um, and do right by uh, Alabamians. And uh, bringing uh, Tish back into the conversation, Tish Patel-Fox, what this means for other states all over the country, and particularly in the South where you are. I mean, we're talking about... Uh, redistricting of a map that could lead to the uh, changing of the parties uh, in Congress. Who controls Congress? Well, we know that aside from Alabama, Louisiana also had a successful gerrymandering challenge. And of course, we are expecting that the ripples of this opinion will be felt in the next election cycle and through the rest of the decade. I think that this is a moment for the citizens of our government to support voters to their policy preference. We know that it should not be that elected officials select who they represent that the people should be empowered to select their representative. Across the South, I think this is going to be important, but this will also have an impact 
in the Southwest, in the Midwest, and perhaps all over. But this is that this is a victory for representative democracy, and that is what we want to ensure remains. Michelle Fox, I want to thank you for being with us, legal director at the ACLU of Alabama. David Rossborough, attorney with the ACLU Voting Rights Project, one of the attorneys who represented the plaintiffs before the Supreme Court. And Kadita Stone, chief field and campaigns strategist at Alabama Forward, one of the named plaintiffs in the case. Coming up, Amali Eshetela joins us, chair of the African People's Socialist Party. He's been indicted. He responds. Stay with us. Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The Warren Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Well, the federal indictment of Donald Trump is making headlines around the world today. We end the show looking at another federal indictment that's received little press attention. In April, the Biden administration charged four U.S. citizens from a pan-Africanist group with conspiring with the Russian government to sow discord in U.S. elections. Amali Eshetela, chair of the African People's Socialist Party, faces charges of conspiracy to defraud the United States, along with Penny Hess, Jesse Neville, and Augustus Romain Jr. Three Russians were also named in indictment unsealed by the Justice Department. This follows a violent FBI raid on the activist properties in Missouri and Florida last summer. African People's Socialist Party has been a longtime advocate for reparations for slavery, a vocal critic of U.S. foreign policy. Amalia Shatella joins us now, chairman of the African People's Socialist Party, located in St. Louis, Missouri. Amalia, thanks for joining us again. We spoke to you after the FBI raid um, on your house in St. Louis. If you can now talk about the indictment, your response to what the government is alleging. Well, thank you very much. Uh, first of all, I want to say we have to stop meeting like this. I think the first time we met was after the uh, government attacked uh, our Uhura house in St. Petersburg, Florida in 1996, 300 strong. Uh, and then uh, we've talked subsequent to that, the July 29th attack on the Uhura House in St. Petersburg, Florida, and as you mentioned, my home in St. Louis, Missouri, uh, as well as uh, offices and homes of our party members in two states, St. Louis and uh, in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. So 
As you mentioned, uh, the indictment happened uh, after something like nine months uh, after we were characterized as unindicted co-conspirators uh, uh, in some plot uh, with the Russians, uh, who uh, it is said that uh, we uh, uh, served uh, in fighting for around the questions of reparations and fighting uh, to uh, bring the United States uh, before the United Nations for the crime of genocide against African people and for our differences with the United States in terms of uh, the Ukraine war. Uh, and our participation in elections. It's interesting that you just had uh, two or three people who were talking about the electoral process and people celebrating uh, the, the, the presumed victory of the Voting Rights Act with the decision in Alabama. But the fact of the matter is, uh, in, in Alabama, where we saw in 1963, four uh, black children murdered uh, at a church uh, for participating in the electoral process bombed, uh, in 19 and 2022, uh, uh, on July 29th, uh, my house was bombed uh, because of our participation in the election. This instance, they call it flashbang grenades and things like that, and our participation in the election. So even uh, characterizing this thing in Alabama, some great victory for voting rights. Uh, uh, the fact is that uh, whether or not you have can participate within uh, districts that are characterized as fairly drawn, uh, if you're going to be attacked for participating in what you do and how you do it, uh, then uh, there's no justice there, there's no democracy there. So we were, on April uh, uh, 18th, we were uh, indicted, uh, me, uh, Jesse uh, Neville Penny Hatch, uh, two white people who work on the solidarity uh, part of our party, were uh, indicted. On May 2nd and May 8th, uh, we uh, had to turn ourselves into federal court in Tampa, Florida, back to Florida again, uh, where uh, we were handcuffed, uh, placed in leg arms, uh, and then uh, brought before uh, in a cell in cells and then brought before a judge uh, who we are told really was uh, quite lenient with us uh, uh, because uh, we were released on uh, something like $25,000 bail. And the only uh, provisions uh, associated with that is that we have to be open to investigation or uh, visits at our home by, by forces who function uh, sort of as uh, uh, parole officers. And we had to turn in our passports and we couldn't have any personal weapons on the premise, and if we go any place, we have to let them know, and we have to report once a week to this, uh, this supervising officer. Uh, so that's, that's where we are now, in terms of the outcome of the indictment up to this point. And so trial uh, dates uh, uh, have to uh, be firmed, uh, but we expect that early uh, next year. And Omani Yashitelli, what are what is the substance of the federal government's indictment and this allegation uh, that you were involved in a conspiracy with uh, Russian citizens? What are they saying that your organization did? Well, they say we participated in elections in 2017-2019. They said that we participated uh, in uh, gathering petitions uh, and doing a tour. Uh, where we were calling on people uh, to support us in, in, in bringing the United States uh, before uh, the World Court uh, for violation of the 1948 uh, United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. 
they said that I uh, uh, attended a conference in Russia uh, 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 that was an international conference that where people from around the world attended the same conference that talked about uh, uh, self-determination, uh, etc. Uh, I mean, these are the things uh, that uh, that we are claimed uh, to have uh, have done that resulted in this indictment. And so, what they've done is cover the fact that generally what I've just mentioned uh, is something that presumably is covered by First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, freedom of association, uh, freedom from unlawful search uh, and seizure, and these kinds of things. And said that well, ordinarily that's the case, but in this instance. Uh, uh, he was functioning on a party and movement, and the people in, uh, that they uh, have indicted uh, were functioning as agents of Russia. So uh, it liquidates the fact that uh, for 60 years, 50, almost 60 years of political activity, we've been doing more or less the same thing. They liquidate the fact that in 2007, and anybody can go and look at this, uh, I was invited to speak in Huelva, Spain, uh, for an international audience that uh, well, supported by the government of Spain, uh, where they provided uh, transportation resources for us and uh, and uh, said more or less the same things, except in this instance, my condemnation was not around the Russia-Ukraine question, but it, it was around the United States' uh, involvement in Iraq uh, and, and Afghanistan. So, so there's nothing new that I'm doing now that I haven't been done. I imposed Vietnam War. I I uh, uh, interceded uh, uh, in various kinds of attacks. I was in Ireland uh, in 1980s uh, when the United States was supporting uh, England's uh, effort to keep that uh, people under uh, colonial domination. Uh, so there are various other places that I've traveled to uh, uh, expressing uh, unity with oppressed peoples and, and winning unity <clears throat> with uh, the struggle of African people here and around the world. And, and you mentioned that the uh, that your organization has existed for more than 60 years. For those people who are not familiar with the African People's Socialist Party, could you talk about its origins and its uh, platform? Yeah, I think that's important because as it should be understood that I uh, am a product of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee organization, SNCC. Uh, that SNCC was the organization that uh, projected the Black Power slogan demand uh, into uh, public discourse and the political uh, uh, agenda of African people all around the world in the 1960s. I was a part of that. I was arrested for the first time uh, politically uh, in my history as a consequence of tearing down a racist, a vile, vicious racist mural that was hanging on the wall of the city of St. Petersburg, uh, Florida, that depicted black people uh, as ape-like uh, forces and uh, eight by ten mural. I snatched that down. I was uh, taken to trial. I was tried. I was charged with 11 offenses. I was charged, sentenced to five years in prison. Uh, uh, and while out on bond for that, uh, just a few days later, Martin Luther King's assassinated. I'm in Gainesville, Florida, and, uh, four days after that, uh, protesting uh, his assassination. I was arrested again, uh, this time because I said something that they said was an incitement to riot. The first person arrested in the state of Florida for a new charge called inciting to riot, and it didn't require a riot to happen. I just had to want one to happen when I spoke. Fuck crime. There's been that kind of history. So uh, SNCC from SNCC, we created the Hunter Militant Organization, a group called JOMO, uh, that organized throughout the state of Florida and throughout uh, Kentucky uh, initially. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I was in prison uh, various occasions, free speech issues all the time for that. 
And then uh, uh, we came to certain conclusions that it was not enough just to have protest movements. We, we have to move beyond protests and move to, uh, toward the question of capturing and, and yielding political power. So in 1972, uh, after working for a while uh, with various organizations, we created the African People's Socialist Party. And the African People's Socialist Party uh, is an organization that is... Uh, uh, that was created for the purpose of continuing the black revolution of the 1960s that saw uh, the attack on uh, the Panther 21 in 1969, that saw the raid on uh, Fred Hampton's home in 1969 that resulted in his assassination, that saw uh, uh, came as a consequence of the assassinations of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and a host of other forces like this. We said we were going to complete that movement that they had begun. Uh, and so in 1972, the African People's Socialist Party was created, and we also recognized that the struggle for black power, black people, uh, had run into its limitation as long as it was fought within the context of the borders that had been created for us, even in Africa and around the world. And so it's an international organization. We exist in the Caribbean. We exist uh, 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 throughout Europe. Uh, we exist all over the continent of Africa and inside the United States as well. And so uh, we are an international organization, we're African internationalists, and our politics is informed uh, by a revolutionary theory called African internationalism that we have developed over the last 50 years of trying to find solutions for the practical contradictions that black people are confronted with here. We have created more than 50 uh, different uh, economic development projects, many of them centered right here in St. Louis where we came under assault. Uh, and we have suffered as a consequence of this process. We were attacked first in July 2nd, uh, at the St. Petersburg, Florida, by someone with a flamethrower, a military great flamethrower that torched a 15 by 25 foot flag, red, black, and green flag, uh, that was perched uh, atop a 50 foot flagpole. We were attacked subsequent to that July 29th, as most people now have come to understand who are familiar with this case. Subsequent to that, uh, in August, uh, a car was broken in and a vehicle was stolen, uh, a, a, car, a, a vehicle was broken in, uh, and a computer uh, stolen, passport stolen, uh, uh, various other things like that. The banks have now uh, begun the process of sanctioning us, Regions Bank first, and subsequent to Regions Bank, uh, we've had to deal uh, with the uh, a Chase uh, Bank. Uh, we've had a church right across the street from my home uh, in, in, in St. Louis that we had under contract to create other economic development programs. It was burned to the ground in January. It's just been an array of assaults that's been made against us uh, since that time. So it's very clear uh, that this is about more than what the government has said it's about, and this an objective intent was to destroy our movement and to make sure that what it was they began in the 1960s to push us back uh, was something that was completed with the assault on the African People's Sources Party and the Uhuru movement. Amalia Shetela, your point on Spain is you do accept money from, for example, if you're invited by the government of Spain or the government of Russia, and you're saying that doesn't mean you're an agent of them. They said one of your co-conspirators is Alexander Inoff, um, that he is involved with spawning, um, uh, that he says that uh, he's that the government says in, with spawning dissident movements within the United States. Your response? I'm saying that uh, as far as we knew, we never accepted money, first of all, from the Russian government. I use the Cuervo presentation in Spain 
uh, because we did uh, go to a meeting that was sponsored by the anti-globalization movement in Russia, which is a, a NGO. Uh, NGO invited us to Spain as well. Uh, the, there was some noise being made, uh, but we accepted a six-day trip to, uh, to Russia. Uh, the fact is that it was the anti-globalization movement that uh, provided uh, this transportation there. But in Spain, uh, an NGO that was closely associated with the Spanish government, that was connected to people who were either uh, currently or previously associated with the United Nations, that were governments from Mali and other places that also attended, that we were paid not just transportation, but we were given honorariums of uh, significance. And it was an international conference. I use the Spanish thing just to show the hypocrisy of the United States government that's saying that somehow, suddenly, uh, we became uh, agents of a foreign government because we attended a conference uh, in Russia. This is most ridiculous, asinine, and the thing that... We're going to have to leave it there, Molly. Uh, Molly Yeshitella, chair of the African People's Socialist Party. I'm Amy Good. Hi, I'm a monthly donor to 360 TV. They are not owned by any corporation. It's real important to me, and I need Stephanie Miller and Tom Hartman to get me through the day. Love the station, been with it for many, many years, and plan on staying with it. Thanks very much, you guys. Mm. Free speech. Okay, okay, okay. Oh, my. I'm just going to say things are moving really quickly, and... People are learning about things, <laughs> all kinds of things. Uh, just why it brings me brings me back to what Bernie actually said. He is he's a democratic socialist, and of course, then he turned it around to you can say I'm a social democrat. Uh, but Bernie. Yet the thing is that Bernie is an example of the words. <laughs> he, he walks his talk and uh, we're just calling all angels. Hey, eh, Rama? Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to get our Egyptologist scientists uh, another go here. We didn't play these two things. Can't remember what was going on on the seventeenth, nineteenth. Uh, uh, I mean, of of May. Uh, but our our uh, Shakespearean expert, Alan W. Green. Uh, this is who or what was Shakespeare? This is called Shakespeare Decoded. Explore the modern day. Heist, exposing Freemasonic clues that began a quest to uncover one of the biggest literary cover-ups in history. From the alchemical creations of John D. <coughs> this is in our 33-page um, dissertation on the Sarah Law, you might say, John Dee's in there, in the Elizabethan era, 
to the mysteries of Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford. Join author Alan W. Green to explore the twists and turns of history, combining an understanding of modern cryptography with a powerful ancient phrase in Hebrew. Green shares from his decades of research to illuminate a secret cipher embedded into the works of Shakespeare. Could the answers to these mysteries lie within the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford? Okay, now that's... Mm. um, I went to Stratford for theater, Elizabethan theater, when I was in college. And it's a theater town, and it's very, very British. Mm. But uh, we will... uh, we will enjoy this. It's, again, it's called The Heist, and this is 30 minutes, right, now. Mm. Okay, let's do this. you were expecting, right? Or not here. There'll be no me thinketh, no wherefore art thou, and definitely no men in tights. This is about the real Shakespeare, the man behind the mask. Throughout history, there have been several theories surrounding who the real Shakespeare was. Some say Sir Francis Bacon was involved, Others have unearthed evidence that points to Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. Records from the Renaissance during the reign of Queen Elizabeth reveal that Edward de Vere's father died mysteriously and the young Earl inexplicably became a ward of court under strict supervision of the Queen's closest advisor, William Cecil. Also, we learn John Dee was a master mathematician, cryptographer, and spy for the Queen on Her Majesty's Secret Service. His code number? 007. We will uncover the elaborate cryptographic masterpiece Dee embedded within Shakespeare's works that reveals the poet's true identity. Connecting the dots on the cover of his famous sonnets, we discover that Dee embedded 12 math constants, five of which were not even known at the time of printing in 1609, along with the geographical coordinates of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Uniting the sonnet numbers that contain the words speed, light, and pyramid, we discover an equation that reveals the speed of light, to 99.84% accuracy. 300 years before Einstein knew it. The same system also reveals the average distances from Earth to Sun and Moon. Using Dee's unique cryptographic method, 
we will examine the mysterious Enochian tables that were channeled to him by angels through the medium Edward Kelly and learn how Dee used this mysterious grid to create a system that ensured these secret messages survived the dark ages to reach us today. Decrypting additional clues within Shakespeare's plays, we will find sequences of deliberately wrong page numbers that point to astounding revelations that are all part of a divine puzzle. We'll also learn the foolproof system Dee and Shakespeare used to draw attention to specific dates, which reveal that the entire sonnet sequence mirrors the structure of the Great Pyramid. We will add up all the characters in Shakespeare's sonnet's dedication, his monument and gravestone, and find they sum to 624, coinciding with the fact that the Enochian tables were channeled to D on June 24th, 624, and contain 624 squares, exposing an undeniable cipher that leads to Holy Trinity Church in Stratford, England. Add to this the fact that the sonnet's dedication is structured as six lines, two lines, and four lines. Then discover that the TH and ME ligatures on the monument mimic the Freemason's sacred triple tau symbol. As we examine several elaborate pieces of Dee's divine puzzle, we are compelled to recognize both a new Shakespeare and Freemasonic secrets that will change history as we know it. Whoever the real Shakespeare was, what went down behind the curtain in the life of this legendary icon was more dramatic, more dangerous than any of his most controversial plays. You're about to witness an inconceivable true story a secret society espionage thriller with a juicy royal scandal thrown in, all wrapped up in a stunning coded masterpiece that finally solves a four centuries old cover-up. The greatest literary whodunit of all time. Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon is one of England's most popular tourist attractions. It's where, we are told, William Shakespeare is buried. Just a few yards away from the most sacred relic in the church, the Holy of Holies altar stone. This 800-year-old marble slab and Shakespeare's grave and monument are guarded by 24-hour CCTV cameras and a forensic system that sprays any unauthorized intruder with a chemical detectable on the body or clothing for up to 12 months. Don't risk it. 100% conviction rate in court, says the welcome sign. Why such James Bond-style security? Nobody's going to walk out with it. It weighs over three tons. What secrets does it hold? Oh, there are lots of secrets surrounding the Shakespeare mystery. For instance... In school, we were taught he's the most famous poet playwright in the Western world, one of the most prolific writers ever. But here's something we were never told. The greatest writer in history never wrote a letter to anyone. 
Not so much as a note has ever been found. You've probably heard he wrote best-selling epic poems, over 150 sonnets, dozens of the most famous plays in the world, including Hamlet, Midsummer Night's Dream, Macbeth, Romeo and Juliet, but we were never told. Not a single original manuscript has ever been found. Not a play, a poem, a page, a line, a word exists in his own hand. Just six shaky signatures, all barely legible, all spelled differently. Shakespeare. Handwriting experts can't even agree they were all written by the same person. Your fleshes of merriment that were once to set the table on a roar. But one now to mock your own grinning. Ten of his plays are set in Italy and reveal he's intimately familiar with the locations, customs and idiomatic language. As I am Egypt's queen, thou blushest, Antony. Thirteen more are set throughout Europe, the Middle East, and African countries. And yet, the man from Stratford, the man we've all been told was the great author, that man, Shakespeare, never set foot outside of England. We're told he was this great scholar, fluent in multiple languages, with unfailingly accurate knowledge of astronomy, astrology, medicine, Botany, Greek mythology, the Bible, mathematics, music, seafaring, military terms, aristocratic pursuits such as hawking, tennis, swordsmanship, jousting, court customs, politics, and above all, an encyclopedic mastery of the law. And yet, his last will and testament reveals he didn't own a single book, not even a family Bible. And no record exists showing he had even the barest minimum of an education. We were never told these things. But you're about to discover why all this was covered up. My crown is in my heart, not on my head. I've been a pianist, composer, singer, recording artist virtually all my life until 2004 when I became obsessed with the Shakespeare mystery and stumbled onto some Renaissance codes which inexplicably I found I had a knack for deciphering. Six years later, I had dived so deep into this world that I knew for certain I had discovered the most important cryptographic key to solving the whole Shakespeare puzzle. And I had identified the actual physical location where Shakespeare had left the truth of who he really was and why there had been a cover-up. All I had to do was go get it. The holy grail of literature. Except... It's one of the busiest tourist attractions and most protected sites in England, Holy Trinity Church in Stratford. Plus, it happens to be the most sacred relic in the church, the Holy of Holies altar stone. And all those warnings at the entrance are likely due to the war that's been raging for about 200 years between the Stratfordians... Those are the ones who believe only the man from Stratford could possibly have been the great author. And groups who believe the writer was someone else. The most prominent in those camps are the Oxfordians. They believe the 17th Earl of Oxford, Edward de Vere, was responsible. Needless to say, the whole town of Stratford is dependent on the orthodox stories. The major part of their livelihood derives from the status quo. 
So anyone breezing into town claiming they have an answer to a question that townsfolk won't even acknowledge exists is by default pretty unwelcome. Now I went to the church and to the bishop of the diocese and I told them I know where a priceless Shakespeare relic is hidden that will bring the church worldwide acclaim and effectively end their financial woes forever. Come on, let's open up the altar. It's in there. <laughs> Yeah, the immediate reaction was to dismiss my theories out of hand without even giving it a look. Are you a cryptographer? No, but do you have a, a master's degree in mathematics or cybersecurity? No, I'm actually a pianist, but well, thank you so much for coming, Mr. Green. No one was going to take my claim seriously without the endorsement of an actual cryptographer. So I contacted the most famous cryptographer in the world, Whitfield Diffie, to ask, would he check my methods and hopefully confirm my conclusions were sound, maybe even give me some pointers. But his consultation fee was $500 an hour, and well, I had hundreds of pages of research and discoveries, most of which were the kind that you wouldn't normally associate with your standard conception of Shakespeare. Bizarre, unexpected connections, such as hidden references to the Great Pyramid of Giza, Rosicrucian and Freemasonic symbolism in certain plays, on this gravestone, on the monument, behind the altar, in the Stratford Church. And most strange of all, strong clues that the real Shakespeare faked his own death in order to be free to do the most important side gig of his career, the King James Bible. I couldn't afford Diffie to even look at the index to my list of findings. But I got lucky. His wife, Mary, was an avid Egyptologist, it turns out, and he seemed intrigued by the Freemasonic connections, so I, I suspect that was the combination that led him to offer a rather generous compromise. He said he'd do a quick analysis over dinner if I picked up the tab. Well, of course... He chose the most expensive restaurant in Silicon Valley, and it was a six-hour drive for me. But hey, I would get to pick the brain of a living legend. The rest, as they say, is mystery. You see, in 1976, Diffie and two associates solved an age-old problem assumed by the greatest math minds of all time to be unsolvable. How to communicate a password securely across an insecure channel. Their groundbreaking discovery has impacted everything from how the world's banking systems operate to keeping the nuclear codes safe. And while they were at it, they just happened to make digital online commerce possible. It's called public key exchange. Let's see how it works. Long before Edward Snowden Long before even WikiLeaks, the NSA tried to ban this book because it revealed more about code breaking than they themselves knew. Its author, David Kahn, said Diffie's accomplishment was the most revolutionary new concept in the field since the Renaissance. It's a great magic trick performed entirely with zeros and ones. Let's say Alice wants to send some information to Bob in secret. Their communication is vulnerable because Eve is always listening. Now, 
His system actually mixes very large prime numbers, but he, he knew he'd never get the suits to understand he was making the world safer if brain fog set in as soon as he opened his mouth. So instead of attempting to explain this, he simply showed them this and said, imagine two cans of paint, easy to mix, impossible to unmix. Eventually, Eve became the name the agencies used to mean any eavesdropper in playing. Anyway, here was Diffie's solution to all that. Alice and Bob agree on a public key, yellow. Knowing full well that Eve will intercept it, but then Alice creates her own private key, let's say red, mixes it with the yellow public key and gets orange. These are just large prime numbers, remember. Bob creates his own private key, let's say blue, mixes it with yellow and gets green. Yellow isn't needed anymore, and now Alice and Bob communicate these new keys to each other, knowing full well Eve will steal these two, but now the magic trick. Alice mixes Bob's green with her private red, producing brown. Bob mixes Alice's orange with his private blue, producing brown. These are absolutely mathematically identical. No need for orange or green anymore. Alice and Bob are golden. They can communicate securely in public. And sure, Eve will still grab it, but without the red and the blue keys, she has no idea how this was mixed. Eve is shut out. That's the miracle of public key exchange. And for about 45 years, this system has been impossible to crack, even using all the brute force computing power available on the planet. So, we're having dinner. Me, the piano player, him, the math legend who saved the world and has friends in high places. And I mean really high places, like NSA, CIA type high places. So I seize the moment and I say, look, what if Alice, or let's say Will, wants to send a message not across distance to Bob, but across time to earn. Eve, during the Renaissance, would have been the notorious star chamber. If Will's got a secret so dangerous, his entire life's paper trail has to vanish. He obviously needs a really secure key, right, to communicate forward to a time when it'll be safe for it to be known. So a public key text appears in 1609. The dedication page to the Shakespeare sonnets, and combined with two inscriptions soon to come on the poet's monument and gravestone, they form the equivalent of the yellow key. You're going to see these in detail in episode two, but for now, let me just give you the broad strokes I gave Diffie. Star Chamber could intercept these, and they certainly did. We know, for instance, that the sonnets were suppressed as soon as they were published. But still, a handful of them have managed to reach us 400 years across time. What the Star Chamber did not know is that Shakespeare had his own Diffie guy working in the shadows named Dr. John Dee. Dee had friends in high places too, very high places. He was deeply into the esoteric arts and communed with angels for over a decade. But we'll get into that soon enough. So Shakespeare had his own red and blue private keys. This was the red one, 400-year-old private text 
marked with a numbered grid system, clearly telling us how to arrange the public text to be superimposed exactly over it, letter for letter. I'll show you in, in the next episode how D's system produced the code needed to accomplish this goal. Suffice to say, though, for now, it worked. He successfully sent a password securely across an insecure channel, resulting in a message across time that essentially says, a record has been preserved for posterity. Look closely at the consecrated altar stone, where I have hidden inside what I want you to know. Public key exchange, Renaissance style. Diffie sat there for a long time, unblinking, like he'd seen a ghost. Hamlet's perhaps. I like to think he'd simply recognize a system created 400 years ago, almost identical to the one he had created in 1976. Finally, very slowly, he said, if I were you, I would radar scan that altar. He then confided in me a few words of advice concerning Eve that I cannot repeat publicly, but that sent shivers down my spine. He was warning me that without scientific proof, the truth of what I'd found might never be allowed to come out. This could affect the monarchy, right? I nodded. And he called for the check. Fortunately, they knew me at the Stratford Church. I'd made a number of visits already and made some fairly generous contributions in exchange for them letting me film in areas normally off limits to the general public. I told them I was writing a musical and all along I'd been laying the groundwork for something bigger. I just, I didn't quite know what. So I called them up and asked, would they like me to perform a concert of some songs from my Shakespeare musical in the chancel by his grave? And they said, well, we just had a booking fall through, so there's actually an opening in a couple of weeks. Could I make it? I had about 10 days to prepare. I assembled a small team, someone to operate a rented scanner system, someone else to secretly film it. I had a huge banner printed up advertising the musical. Customs loved it at Heathrow. But its real purpose, of course, was to hide what would be happening at the altar. Disabling the CCTV cameras turned out to be quite simple, actually. At the very end of the concert, I simply asked for all the church lights to be turned off so I could sing the final song by candlelight. It was so beautiful and so dark. The forensic system, that was shut off during the show because I, I put the piano right up against the grave. They couldn't risk staining their Steinway. I hired a local film crew to shoot the concert, which distracted from my own secret film crew behind the banner scanning and filming in night vision. The scan guy had just four minutes while the lights were off in which to do the scan. He laid a protective covering down so as not to harm the altar. 
It had grid lines printed on it to guide him as his eyes adjusted to the near total darkness. Song finished, the lights came up, the banner came down, nobody was any the wiser. We hadn't taken anything except zeros and ones. It was the perfect non-crime. Well, we could have been arrested, of course. Back at the hotel, we nervously checked the footage. Well, to be sure, our guy had remembered to switch it on. He'd only had part of an afternoon to practice with it. We hit send, and within a few seconds, the 400-year-old secret was on the hard drives of two of the leading radar labs in America. Everyone was sworn to secrecy, even him. I left the church feeling we had accomplished what Shakespeare himself clearly hoped somebody would eventually do. All that remained was to await the result from the labs. All consecrated Catholic altar stones have to have a saint's cavity hewn into them. It's a small hole that holds relics of a saint. A little blue area is what you'd expect to see in the scan. The two labs worked independently of one another using separate protocols to assure accuracy and both reported the same result. This perfect replica built to scale allows us to see exactly what the scan found, a cavity over six and a half feet long, eight inches deep, up to 30 inches wide. It's 250 times the size it's supposed to be. You don't cut a hole that big into solid polystyrene, I mean marble, unless you're going to put something that big into it. Sure enough, the scan reveals differing densities indicating the presence of various items within this huge cavity. The missing manuscripts, new priceless masterpieces, who knows? Would you like to know? I can tell you one of the most precious items that will be found inside the altar stone when it's eventually opened up, and that's the original sonnets written in the hand of the bard himself. Actually, precious. Can't even begin to describe such a treasure, considering you learned already that Shakespeare left absolutely zero paper trail. Finding anything belonging to the great poet would be literally priceless. I can predict with confidence that the signs are there because the same codes that were scientifically proven accurate by the radar scan are the very same codes that predict he chose the Holy of Holies to be the secret resting place of his most divine love poems. In the next episode, we'll examine in detail how those codes came into being and who exactly Dr. John D. was. But I know you're anxious to start, so here's just a brief preview. It all centers around the name of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai, which is commonly translated from the original Hebrew as I am that I am. This is the first clue that starts us off on this magnificent journey because it's something Shakespeare writes in one of his sonnets. 
He says, no, I am that I am, and they that level at my abuses reckon up their own. I may be straight, though they themselves be beveled by their rank thoughts. My deeds must not be shown. These words, reckon, straight, bevel, rank, are all Freemasonic terms, indicating that those of high rank within their secret societies are declaring his deeds must not be shown. He must, in other words, be anonymous. It was extremely dangerous for Shakespeare to say that, and we'll get into why soon enough. But as you're about to see for yourself, the great poet author has hidden so many secrets inside the sonnets, it becomes clear that this little book of poems is the central Rosetta Stone, if you will, through which he reveals the truth not only of his identity, but the great spiritual truth hiding deep inside every single one of us. So what is the Hebrew name of God revealed in Exodus? I am that I am. Sometimes we're used to just I am that or So let's look at this pen name the author chose to conceal his true identity. I am Asher, the name of God, will speak. And yes, that's how speak was spelled in Shakespeare's day. He's clearly indicating he's a vehicle for divine truth. And there's hardly a Shakespearean scholar who would argue with that, whether Stratfordian, Oxfordian, Baconian, or any other Audian. They all agree. His work is divine. Setting aside just the I am will part, which of course is the ultimate creative force of all life, we find that even just the name Shakespeare itself has its own hidden meaning. Seek a sephar. Well, a sephar is a Hebrew word that means a numbering system or book. It comes from the root word sephir or cipher. We're all familiar, I'm sure, with the Jewish tree of life symbol, the sephirot. So, seek a sephar literally means look for a secret numbering system in a cipher code book through which I am that, the divine name, will speak. Clearly that cipher code book that contains a secret numbering system is Shakespeare's sonnets. I very much look forward to showing you beautiful secrets it contains. Whoever the real Shakespeare was, he, she, they pulled off the greatest vanishing act ever. We don't yet know why. That's what we're going to find out in the next six episodes. But we do know where he left the answer for us. It's right here. Okay, we're going to jump real quick into the next one here. This is the follow-up, and it's called The Secret Agents. <clears throat> How can we decipher the codes of Shakespeare 
and who helped him throughout history. Arthur Allen W. Green, author, excuse me, Allen W. Green, exposes the espionage. Talk about an espionage of a different sort. <laughs> and ciphers from 400 years ago to uncover a narrative that was intentionally hidden from the lost links of the Seal of Solomon to secret messages delivered by characters in Shakespeare's plays, explore the mysteries of Edward de Vere and why John D., the original 007, was communing with angels in seances. Discover how these famous people, places, and events through history weave together a new story told in puzzle pieces over centuries centuries with evidence of Freemasonic and Rosicrucian symbolism still unraveling the mystery. All right, without ado, tally-ho, here we go. This is 32 minutes and we're going to have to squeeze that in because it's beyond midnight. Let's do it. system for sending a secure code across a distance. We've also seen John Dee's system for sending a secure code across time. And deep down, their concepts turn out to be the same, which shouldn't really be a surprise because distance and time, according to Einstein, are essentially the same thing. Space-time. Diffie's invention caused a paradigm shift that literally changed the world. Dee's invention, once recognized, is going to cause a similar paradigm shift in the world's perception of who Shakespeare really was. Sure, right now when we hear his name, we don't think science or astronomical equations. We think plays and poetry, right? Yet his plays and poetry are actually full of references to stars, moon, sun, comets, eclipses. We've just assumed for four centuries that he's only using those words poetically. What if that's not the case? Why on earth would Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, sometimes called just Oxford for short, go to the trouble of enlisting his friend, John Dee, greatest cryptographer of the time, to devise such a mathematically elegant system of sending a secret message to posterity, to us. Why not just write it on a piece of parchment, sign it, tape it to the underside of the altar? It will still be found eventually, no need to jump through all these hoops. Unless the numbers themselves and the patterns they form are as important as the inner message they are wrapped around. Quantum physicists today are verifying what the ancient philosophers have always said. 
On the surface, it looks like we live in a world made up of all these different elements. But deep down, hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, they're just different numbers of electrons, combinations of the same one thing, that elusive God particle. Isn't that what Shakespeare's saying in The Tempest? We are such stuff as dreams are made of. And in Twelfth Night, when he has a drunkard and a clown say four times, it's all one. The message is the code. And the question should not really be who was Shakespeare, but what was he, she, they, whoever this mysterious entity was. Whether you're presently a believer in the Stratford story or are already curious about the alternatives, I should warn you, it's even bigger than anything either side has yet imagined. And our preconceptions about the writer, that small screen, black and white, grainy film that's playing in our collective consciousness right now is about to explode into widescreen, technicolor, surround sound like that moment in Wizard of Oz that changed cinema forever. Because in this story, there's a real wizard, Dr. John Dee. He was the leading mathematician and cryptographer of the age, astronomer, navigator, Hebrew expert, Queen Elizabeth's astrologer and super spy in Europe, code number 007. He documented years of seances in which he was conversing with angels. Now, whether they were what we today think of as angels or let's say extra dimensional beings, whatever they were, they certainly were helping Dee with his mission to create a cryptographic masterpiece whose purpose was to hide the true story of the greatest cover-up in literary history and pass it on securely across time so that it could be revealed once the world was ready to fully receive it. And that time is now. The secret has been decoded, and I assure you, you'll never think of the artist formerly known as Shakespeare in quite the same way ever again. I was first introduced to this deep rabbit hole by a friend, Michael Dunn, who invited me to his one-man show, Sherlock Holmes Solves the Shakespeare Mystery. He grew up in a nearly bookless town, as the son of parents who could neither read nor write. For that matter, he never taught his children to read or write either. I went, as one does, to support a friend, but really reluctantly. My whole life, I had never had the least interest in the man we English call the bard. <laughs> it just means poet, but in England he's the poet. Like many people, I had a block about the costumes and the arcane language and how they all speak though they have hot potatoes in their mouths. <laughs> Nevertheless, I went to my friend's performance and within the first few minutes, I was utterly hooked by that list of anomalies we were never told about and the obvious cover-up they implied. I knew immediately this was the story I'd been waiting for. I had to write it as a musical. I figured I'd spend a year researching, writing, yeah, 18 months tops. 
But the more I learned, the deeper the story grew until it couldn't be contained within one singular sensational theatrical experience. It needed to be a novel, a, a trilogy, part historical drama, part modern day espionage thriller. I had the whole story mapped out, right up to the final scene where my heroine solves a bunch of codes and wraps up the whole mystery with a big red bow. Ta-da! But at the time, I knew nothing about Renaissance codes, and I figured, well, I should at least read up on how they actually did codes back then. So while I was at it, I decided to go to Stratford and see the church for myself. So I did the tour, took some pictures, came back home with a rubbing of Shakespeare's gravestone, stuck it on my wall, and all the while furiously reading up on John Dee. He's this master cryptographer. He used a grid method called equidistant letter sequencing, or ELS. It's a system that puts the letters of a text into a grid, so it then reveals hidden messages vertically. I happened to compare the rubbing I bought with photos that I'd taken of the actual gravestone, and I noticed a problem. The rubbing had only a period where the actual gravestone had a colon. It turned out I had stumbled quite by accident upon something no biography of Dee seems to have ever noticed, that he expanded on the ELS system by creating grids that could give one solution by excluding punctuation and another by including punctuation. And more amazing yet, they complemented each other. This revelation brought about by the missing dot on the rubbing literally shook my world and opened up almost two decades so far of stunning codes and solutions I'm, I'm really excited to share with you. So the first thing is you need a sense of the layout of the church and where the key touchstones are that we'll be looking at in detail to solve the puzzle. This picture was taken during dress rehearsal for the music concert I gave at the Stratford Church. Shakespeare's gravestone is right behind the piano. His text is cryptic, heavily suggesting a cipher. It doesn't even have Shakespeare's name on it. That's touchstone number one. Shakespeare's monument is on the wall above my head. Its text is even more suggestive of a code. The Latin lines are grammatically wrong. The English hardly makes any sense at all. So that's touchstone number two. And a few yards behind me is the Holy of Holies altar stone. It too is very suspicious. But hey, I brought it back with me so you could see for yourself. Just kidding. Let's go have a look at it. Every consecrated Catholic altar stone has to have five crosses on its surface, representing Christ's stigmata wounds. When I first examined the one in Shakespeare's church, I saw it had only three. But I also discovered a fourth cross of a different size and style cut into the front side of the stone that should not be there. So right away, there's a lot of mystery surrounding this 800-year-old holy relic. Not least of which is the fact it was not even there during Shakespeare's lifetime. It had been hidden deep in the church catacombs at the start of Henry VIII's Reformation. The 
the ancient entrance to the catacombs is still marked by a cross on this flagstone outside the church. We don't know how far these medieval tunnels go underground. They could be anywhere within this area. We do know the altar stone was not found deep in those ancient crumbling tunnels, but just inches below the stone slab flooring here in 1889, hidden beneath someone else's altar tomb in the South Cross Isle transept. Clearly, it had been deliberately moved from the hard-to-access tunnels to a place where they knew it would easily be found eventually, which it was. They cleaned it up, reinstated it in the most sacred spot in the church where we see it today, next to the gravestone and the monument and my piano. The solution I showed Diffie states clearly this altar stone is where Shakespeare has left the answer to the puzzle which of course was why I was there that day, setting up this huge banner to obscure the view of the altar as we prepared to radar scan it. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. In order to fully comprehend the codes you're about to see, we need to refresh our memories as to what happened on Mount Sinai nearly three and a half thousand years ago. Cast your minds back. After the Lord speaks to Moses from the burning bush, telling him to deliver a message to the elders. Moses asks, who shall I say sent me? And the Lord answers, Echir, Asher, Echir, which translates as, I am that I am. It's the first time in the Bible that the name of God is revealed by the Lord himself. Each word starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, and in a simple cipher that was well known during Shakespeare's day, the alphabet is revolved so that the first letter Aleph becomes the last letter Tav, mimicking what Christ said in Hebrew, I am the Aleph Tav, the beginning and the end. Thus the three Alephs become three Tavs and their Greek equivalent, three Towers. These three letters were adopted by Royal Arch Freemasonry and are known as the Triple Tau. They allude to the three crosses at Calvary, which, as we know, were just simple Tau crosses. The three T's were compressed into a symbol, wherein all are joined at the base and surrounded by the shape we know today as the Star of David, but which was originally the Seal of Solomon. The connected T's also resemble a TH, which for Freemasons holds three sacred meanings represented by Latin phrases. Keys to the treasure, place where the precious thing is concealed, and first temple of Jerusalem, Solomon's temple. Do you see a triple tower symbol anywhere on the gravestone? It's not even encoded. It's right there in plain sight under the name Jesus. These Ys are printer's thorns, an old English shortcut for the letters TH. So these lines actually read, Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. What about actual TH letters? Well, there's one on each side, but they're not separate T and H letters. They're connected just like the triple tower symbol. Printers call this a ligature. So 
Altogether, including the Y thorns, the gravestone has five THs, representing the five stigmata wounds of Christ. Are there any THs in the monument? Yeah, there are ten, and every pair is ligatured. Once again, they're making that triple tower symbol. But there's also another pair of unusual ligatures, ME and ME. So what is it saying? I am that I am, me, but all caps, important distinction, the real self, me. Notice the THs are in two distinct groups of four and six. So there's a pattern of groups reading four, two, six, left to right, or six, two, four, read backwards, Hebraic fashion. So we have Freemasonic TH ligatures in the gravestone, and in the monument, both of which have cryptic text suggesting a cipher. We don't have to look far to find touchstone number three. It's the dedication page of Shakespeare's sonnets, which is all extremely cryptic text. Notice, first of all, it's structured as three inverted triangles of six lines, two lines, four lines. Same pattern as the monument ligatures. In 1997, the late Oxfordian scholar John Rollett was the first to notice that if you count the sixth word, the second, the fourth, and so on, six, two, four, six, two, it reveals a sentence. These sonnets all by ever the fourth T. Ever was an obvious anagram of Vere, suggesting the leading alternate Shakespeare candidate, Edward de Vere, 17th Earl of Oxford, whose name also contains the 624 pattern. But Rollett couldn't figure out what the fourth T meant, and he abandoned the search. In 2002, another Oxfordian scholar, Art Neuendorfer, thought that since the three T crosses represent Calvary, the fourth T might mean the fourth Tau cross, the fourth person crucified after Calvary in Christ's name. And that was St. Peter, who asked to be crucified upside down, saying, he was not worthy of dying the same way as his Lord. Neuendorfer suspected an ELS grid might reveal an answer and use the standard method, excluding punctuation, that works like this. Just flow the first 10 letters in, and then the next, and so on. You can do this with any grid you wish, of course. This is a five grid, this is a 14. He tried a 19 grid and found a triple tau, with an inverted tau cross next to it spelling the name De Vere. Very promising start that seemed to support Rollett's discovery and confirm Vere, the Earl of Oxford, as the author of the sonnets. Strangely, neither he nor Rollett followed up any further. But I saw their work shortly after I started researching John Dee, and that helped me find something even deeper in it, because in Dee's great cryptological masterpiece, the Monas Hieroglyphica, he clearly tells us he uses punctuation, dots, as part of his unique coding method. He states, in it there be not even one superfluous dot and not one dot wanting. So the fact that every word in the sonnet's dedication is followed by a dot told me this had to be Dee's work. I started by looking for other occurrences of the triple tau and veer inverted cross. 
I put the gravestone text into every possible grid and discovered there's only one where you find a triple tau next to an inverted tau cross spelling the name Veers, as in belonging to Veer. I did the same with the monument text and found there's only one there that has a triple tau balanced against an inverted tau cross spelling Evere for Edward. So it looked like I was onto something. It had the consistency of a definite repetitive system. I dove deeper into the gravestone. Besides the triple tau and Veer's cross, I saw ears and eyes perfectly balanced against each other like Freemasonic T-squares. Well, here's Queen Elizabeth in one of her favorite gowns, covered in ears and eyes. She's basically telling the world, don't mess with me, I've got my spies everywhere. Well, Elizabeth's chief spy in Europe was Dee. He was literally the ears and eyes of Her Majesty. But he's gone even further and actually signed his work with two pillars, like the Boaz Yakin pillars at the entrance to Solomon's Temple. D and D. But here's the kicker, his code number, 007. How brilliant, O-O-D in the shape of a number seven. We're gonna see a lot more of these signatures and his great sense of humor. But there's more. Dee was communing with angels in seances for over a decade in England and Europe. One of the most important of those sessions took place in Krakow, Poland in 1584. A coded transmission was delivered to Dee during a long session that started on June 24th, 624. The angels gave precise instructions to put all the letters into four quadrants. And as you can see, Dee marked the grid himself. There are precisely 624 spaces. The document is called the Enochian Tables. And of course, it's the private red key that you saw in the previous episode. And the public yellow key was the three grids I've just shown you. So let's recap. Dee created three separate grids, Sonnet's Dedication, Monument, and Gravestone, all excluding punctuation. But the Enochian tables were divinely inspired and uploaded to Dee by angelic beings. I had a hunch he was using dots as a way to create other grids that would add extra meaning to the first messages. So I counted the punctuation and characters in all three to see if they led to the next step in the puzzle. So, Sana's dedication, including all characters and dots, total 178. Monument, all characters and punctuation, 332. Gravestone, all characters and punctuation, 113. Overall total, 623? What? <laughs> Impossible. If it had been out by five or six, I'd have admitted my hunch was wrong, but out by one? There had to be a mistake somewhere. I, And then I realized I was using the rubbing of the gravestone, which of course is wrong. It has a single dot instead of a colon. This is the moment I absolutely knew I got his methodology down. Clearly, he was using the colon like a null, 
as a way of filling two separate spaces when necessary. Bingo. The true total for all three is 624. There couldn't be a clearer invitation to match the 624 characters of the three touchstones against the 624 characters of the Enochian tables. However, just laying them over each other is only the first step. You need a master key to know what points to what. I looked deeper into Royal Arch Masonry and I discovered that members are awarded this companion's jewel when they reach a certain level. It's a seal of Solomon again within a circle of gold and at the bottom is a Latin phrase nil nisi clavis diest which means nothing is wanting but the key and the key of course is the th symbol in the center that's it the sonnet's dedication is signed tt the initials of the publisher thomas thorpe but of course that's a clue hiding in plain sight isn't it he's really thomas thorpe th th the master key is in fact the double T of his sign-off. <laughs> and there are just five sets of the double T's that point across from the sonnet's dedication, gravestone, and monument to the letters in the Enochian tables that reveal a message. Living page. But the part that shocked Diffie was that the master key, five sets of double T's, is also in the Enochian tables. Now, this is where to fully comprehend the system, it can take 18 years because you don't suspect at first that it's going to be much more than just a new and improved ELS system. But it's so much more. It migrates across all Shakespeare's works because he can't resist putting clues into seemingly unrelated scenes in the plays. You end up having to read them all to recognize that it's always little moments usually comedic, that seem to have nothing to do with the main storyline. Like he's just putting in a slapstick routine for a little light relief. But there are always secret hidden references to the overall bigger puzzle of the Shakespeare mystery. One such scene is where Malvolio in Twelfth Night is reading a letter that contains a code. It occurs at the very top of page 264, where we read... No man must know, no man must know what follows, the numbers altered, no man must know. And sure enough, you look across and the number has been altered, 273 instead of 265. Further down, he reads, M-O-A-I doth sway my life and does some juggling of the letters which he observes all occur in his own name. It's a subtle nod to Juliet's what's in a name because he sees it's a partial anagram of his own name, but he just can't work it out. In fact, it's never solved in the play. It's supposed to be solved by us in the bigger play within the play. Further down and drawing attention to itself in italics, he reads, if this fall into thy hand, revolve. Well, if we revolve the letters we get I-A-O-M, and my good friend Professor Michael Delahoy, who teaches Shakespeare at Washington State University, pointed out to me that I-A-O-M is the Freemason's most sacred password, given only under strictest secrecy. I remember thinking, could it really be that simple? 
It's page 264, after all, the, the nearest he can get to a page 624 or 426, as the sections in the folio don't go that high. Are we supposed to just revolve the Enochian tables? Well, turns out that's exactly what we're being instructed to do. And now the double T's in both directions are pointing to completely different letters, but back at their own private codes. Diffie-colored paint analogy again. <laughs> and when mixed together, they give messages three and four. I have hewn desiderata. The whole solution is a Shakespearean rhyming couplet in iambic tetrameter form. It says, living page, yostigmata, I have hewn desiderata. In modern parlance, it says, there's a living page, a preserved record kept alive. Yo, Middle English word that means look closely at. Stigmata, Christ's wounds. They're the crosses carved into a consecrated altar stone where I have hewn, cut into stone. Desiderata, Latin for my desires, what I want you to know. All of which points us to the altar stone known as the Holy of Holies. We've seen the seal of Solomon now in two places. Why are we being led to Solomon's temple and the Holy of Holies? Here's the temple layout. Remember, Solomon's temple, keys to the treasure, place where the precious thing is concealed, all THs. So the place where the precious thing is concealed, the ark, is the Holy of Holies. And the Hebrew word for it is pronounced Devir. From the root word Devarim, which means words. So when Polonius asks Hamlet, what do you read, my lord? And Hamlet, feigning madness, says, words, words, words. He's actually telling us the root of his name, Devere, Devere, Devere. Oxford must be laughing his tights off watching this drama unfold from wherever he is. Talk about a play within a play within a play. He supposedly died on June 24th, 624. That's according to the historical record. Want to bet? What are the odds of him dying on the very day the codes are all about? Well, it's nowhere near as good as the spin of a roulette wheel. It's about 10 times that, 365 to 1. William Shakespeare was baptized on April 26, 426. What are the odds of him being baptized on the very day the codes are all about? Well, that's the same, isn't it? 365 to 1. But the odds of these both happening by sheer coincidence, the beginning of Shakespeare's life and the end of the real Shakespeare's life, you need to multiply these together. It's 133,000 to one. The Enochian tables, the Rosetta Stone for decrypting this whole mystery so far, was delivered by angels to Dee on June 24th, 624. 
and it has exactly 624 squares in it. That's another 365 to 1 coincidence. Odds are now over 48 million to 1. Figuring that Oxford died 20 years to the day after the angels delivered the very code he was told to use. That's now over 350 trillion to 1. I think you get the picture. The proof is in the magic of the map. In the next episode, we'll explore some of the many other coincidences of this puzzle, the mathematical probabilities of which are just as extreme. There's essentially zero chance of this being coincidental. These are secure messages sent across time specifically to us. And they're accompanied by even more elegant codes that further confirm two brilliant geniuses guiding us with a system that can only be called a combination of math and poetry, mathoetics, an unheard of level of cryptographic sophistication that will ultimately deliver us the answer to what they hid inside this altar stone and why. Okay, that was too beautiful to say anymore. Except we wish you many good dreams tonight, and we will see you this afternoon. And with that, um, we are going to pass the talking stick to the last word of the last word, lady. Lady Master Rainbird, here comes. Okay, I got it. And yeah, the last word is let's. Do it again tomorrow, this afternoon. <laughs> very good, very good this evening. Lots of gratitude. And I was drinking purple juice while Rama was swimming in it. So, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> purple juice, that's very funny. You know, uh, Doggy, he says that he's, you know, he's got his, uh, this beautiful lady friend now, and she makes juice for him. And I said, what color is the juice? Every color in the rainbow. There, He's actually juicing. That's funny. Yeah, that's great. That's, that's great. That yeah, this was great juice that I made. So it was homemade juice. <laughs> Are you, you, you have grapes in your yard? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I made it last year, and I left I... it sitting in the refrigerator, and it turned into a hard quality. We call it a hard juice, very fizzy and firm, a little bit firm in it, hardly tasted for a minute, just really as a dry wine, maybe. I don't know. It was pretty so good. So it's got a little <laughs> nip in it, does it, dear? What? I, I said it's got a little nip in it, does it, dear? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, not much. It was an in-between state. Uh-huh. That sounds it lovely. Was very fun, and it was really funny when Mama said he was swimming in pure purple juice. <laughs> <laughs> I had to say that. He's, you got a grin on him. You got a grin on him. Again, I really enjoyed the Shakespeare person. Now I'm glad you played that. I am too. I'm just glad that we can thank uh, Gaia TV. 
Oh, nice. It's on Gaia. Sweet. Yeah, it is. Mm. All yeah. right. So, shall okay. we shall we take our nipper to to the to the Netherlands of Dreamtime? <laughs> yeah. I think we're going to just say Satnam everybody. Sweet dreams. Thank you, Rainbird. Rama, Satnam. Satnam G. Thirteen thank yous, honey of the heart. No evil. Live long and prosper. Until this afternoon, namaste, everyone.